Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. some of your earlier thoughts and conversations that you were having uh, with regards to intersectionality uh, and mm-hmm. whatever privileges black males might have on the basis of gender mm-hmm. and then being mm-hmm. mistreated as victims of racism. Uh, he wanted to know, mm-hmm. can you kind of describe how maybe some of the shifts in your understanding or your, your thought, your view on this uh, from where things started to where you are now? Okay. Um, uh, two different thoughts. So, remind the second thought is really about some of this later work that really talks about agency, and I want to get there. Um, but I want to start with um, uh, this this notion of male privilege. I and I guess I would probably disagree with um, Dr. Curry a bit, although I couldn't give you concrete examples. I do think that black men do have access to uh, some limited form of male privilege. Um, um, that they benefit um, from male domination, and so uh, male domination. Um, this concept is, I think, very similar. That um, men as a group subordinate women as a group it would be how I might start. Um, and in the, and black men, uh, though uh, this is much more problematic. And um, there are a lot of other intersecting factors and axes of power in how they exercise that privilege um, or the extent to which they can use that privilege. I do that. I do think they have male privilege. So. Context of white supremacy, Gus T. Renegade, in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Concrete examples. Before we get back to concrete examples, two quick things. Number one, Stuck in my craw from the last program, uh, we had one of our, our callers. We had our global Sunday talk on racism this past Sunday. Anti-blackness is going to be gargantuan going all the way into the election. I had forgotten all about that, but that was a part of Trump's victory in 2016, the anti-blackness. But uh, it was said on the global Sunday talk on racism that a non-white person, a black person in the U.S., if they vote for It was said Kamala Harris, but her name really isn't on the ballot. You'd be voting for Biden. So if you vote for Biden, the Biden-Harris ticket, you are, your soul is condemned to 
hell and eternal damnation. You already got a heat wave. Uh, I mean, I think on this broadcast we say pretty regularly, be patient with other black people. Uh, I don't think casting a ballot for anyone, even Donald Trump, is worthy of eternal damnation. Be patient with victims of racism. The second thing, did you all know yesterday was Negro Kitten Day? This is not something I made up. This was in the news. Mainstream media outlets, like not fake news or what have you, Black Cat Day. Only in a system of racism, white supremacy. I even thought, like, do they have Negro Day? I guess they have Black History Month, but Negro Kitten Day. And not only was August 17th Black Cat Day, I went to the park with a black person, and we actually saw a black cat. It crossed the street. It spoke to us. It was articulate, well-spoken, rape anyone while we were there, didn't even cross our path. Spoke, said, what's up, kept it moving. Negro cat day, who knew? Anyway, concrete examples. So the audio segment you heard at the beginning of the program, legal scholar, uh, Astina Matua, victim of racism, black female. She was a guest on our program uh, at the right after our current president's triumph in the 2016 election. Uh, just literally a few weeks uh, after his victory, she came on the program. Uh, we discussed some of her work uh, around black male privilege that she thinks does exist, even though she couldn't give immediate concrete examples. Wow. Wow. I am still, it's been four years. Some people haven't recovered from Trump's victory in four years. I haven't recovered from that in four years. We got black male privilege, but I don't have any concrete examples. But I do think it exists from a legal scholar. Anywho, uh, we have discussed the concept, the folly in my view. I think I've been very clear uh, in my stance on that, uh, of black male privilege. Uh, we've had Dr. Tommy Curry on the program. His book, The Man Not Race Class Genre, Dilemmas of Black Manhood, in my top ten. Uh, and actually, our guest for today's program, in addition to referencing the work of Dr. Tommy Curry, uh, I went through the report that we're going to discuss today, and he mentioned quite a number of folks who have stopped by the cows over the years. Uh, suspected race soldier, Dr. Peggy McIntosh. Uh, Dr. Peggy McIntosh had to go back all the way to 2009. Uh, Jessica Pettit, Becky Pettit, excuse me, she was a guest on the program in 2014, Invisible Men, uh, her work about uh, how a lot of the research that talks about so much progress that black people have made, it does not count all the black people that are in greater confinement and all the rest, which would make things look substantially less progressive. Uh, and... Athena Matua, as I mentioned, already been a guest on the program. number of folks, as I was just scrolling through the world, like, oh, wow, very familiar. I always like checking out folks uh, who write and have references of people that we have talked to I have some familiarity with. Uh, our guest for today's program, uh, outstanding scholarship. Uh, he is a professor of Africana Studies at Fresno State University in California. Uh, he deals with black masculine studies. Uh, the work we're looking at today, his report, some black men may be jerks, but black male privilege is not a thing challenging the myth of black male privilege. 
will be grand. I think he has concrete examples. Uh, so glad he could hang out with us for the after, well, evening, afternoon, depending on where you are in the world. Uh, joining us live, Dr. T. Hassan Johnson. Dr. Johnson, are you with us, sir? I am, sir. How are you? Right poorly, uh, but so thankful uh, we could get you uh, for this evening uh, to share some of your views, great research on this subject matter. Uh, for folks, I'm sure this may be some folks, this may be their first time uh, hearing about you and your great work. Uh, anything that you would like to share with folks about who you are and the work you do? Uh, uh, associate professor, Africana Studies, uh, black male studies in the sense that I teach a course annually on it, but uh, there is only one black male studies department in the world, and that is in Scotland. You know, so if you want to, particularly in North America, uh, you have to actually go to Scotland to study it because it's, for the most part, uh, an ignored and downplayed field. Um, but uh, in that, you know, so to that sense, um, you know, I've been teaching for over 20 years, uh, tenured faculty, and I host the show, The Onyx Report, which can be found on YouTube um, and on innerlightradio.com. And I do that every Wednesday night at 5 because uh, I think it's a necessary conversation. Spectacular. Uh, we will make sure, plug your work, plug your radio broadcast, YouTube channel as we proceed uh, through the program. I think it should be obvious, but just making sure for folks who haven't seen you, you are a black male. <laughs> yeah, I guess you have to ask those questions these days because online you don't know who people are. But mm-hmm. yes, I am a black male, and uh, <laughs> I'm gonna have to start doing that when I interview people because that's a it's a relevant question. Um, I am a black man, and I'm actually also the founder of the concept of black masculinism. So yes. Spectacular. Uh, we like to keep down the confusion uh, around these parks. Um, I'm in Seattle, Washington, so we got Rachel Dozel and, and all the rest of oh, it. So, you know, okay. we, we can't have any hijinks. Got to be, you know, clear about that one. <laughs> man, oh, man. Right. right. But, uh, important, and I tell folks all the time, important question, you know, to make sure, even if I see the person visually and they, you know, are the complexion of Lapita Nyanga, sometimes I still ask just to make sure because they might, you know, pull a fast one on you. And sometimes you get surprised with the answer. It's like, oh, I'm glad I asked. Say it twice. Say it twice. <laughs> Man, black male Dr. T. Hassan Johnson with us on the cows. Verify. Keep the, the Twitter check next to it. Verify. Uh, on this uh, broadcast, the cows, uh, I use the term racism and the term uh, white supremacy. I use them as synonyms, and I use the same definition uh, for both terms, the definition I use, is as follows, a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Uh, Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that's an accurate definition? I think it exists, um, and that's definitely, you know, a, a focus of my work. Um, I would even go so far to say that it's it's such a, a, a powerfully evil system that they do it to themselves. So um, I fully agree with you in that regard. Um, yeah. Right on. 
Sometimes people have a lot more pushback, but we will take it. Um, I guess kind of before we, we push off and, and get into black male privilege and get into to some of what you have written about, our audio clip at the beginning, our guest Athena Matua was there. Uh, I'll certainly give you a chance if you have any thoughts on what she had to say about black privilege, but there was something playing in the background. Did you identify mm-hmm. the song that was playing in the background? Oh, yes. Um, I appreciated you playing that. I started laughing as soon as I heard it. Uh, that was uh, definitely from uh, the piano lesson, August Wilson's uh, you know, uh, work in 1995. Uh, and the particular song was called Berta Berta. Um, uh, so I, I appreciate that. Actually, the movie was 1990. The, the, uh, the, the uh, Marcellus version of the song is, is quoted in 95, but it's an excellent piece that you started with. Because I use it in the paper to talk a little bit about uh, giving black men some context, but yeah. And the co- uh, context uh, for that prison work song that you cite in your paper. Yes, uh, black men forcibly put to work. And if you get a chance to ever rewatch it, uh, Charles Dutton is the one leading in the song. Mm. Um, I don't know if they actually sing it because it's a you know it's a film, but I suspect they do. Um, nonetheless, powerful song, and in it, these there's a group of black men who are who are up north, um, and they're singing an old work song, uh, and kind of going through it. And, and Courtney B. Vance is in that particular scene as well, and it's so beautifully acted because even in, in singing the song, you can see the look on his face, and you know his character has endured what they're singing about. And, and the song is basically about a black man who's go, who's being sent the parchment farm and he you know he doesn't know when if ever he's going to ever get out and so he's telling the woman he loves what she should do with her life because he doesn't know if he's going to ever see her again you know what i mean and one of the things that he highlights in that song is to not marry a farming man because you have to work seven days a week marry a railroad man because you know every day is sunday your life will be less difficult so it's an interesting kind of statement being made about class coming from a man who's about to go away and never know if he's going to see the woman he loves again. Um, and he even kind of gives her a statement toward the end, you know, when he says, you know, I don't know if I want you when I get free. But if you put that in a contemporary, you know, context, that's like if you're going to prison for the rest of your life and you, you're, you're, you're telling the woman you love, I don't know if I'm going to want you if I ever get out. It's really a, a kind of way of, of trying to, at least in my humble opinion, try to let her know that, uh, you know, you might as well move on. I, you know, I don't know if I'm going to want you. You're trying to set her free because you know that if you ask her to wait and she's the kind of woman that would, her life will be, uh, you know, will be taken as long as, as well as yours. So he, he's kind of letting her go. And even on Courtney Vance's face, you can see the pain of that gesture. But to me, that song highlights the experiences of black men, you know, going back to Reconstruction and, and, and navigating masculinity in a context where we have no power. So the only thing he could do is recommend to her that she find somebody that could provide her a better life than he could. Well. Wow. If that does not exemplify black male privilege, I don't know what does. Um, exactly. Now, that was in the background to legal scholar Athena Matua, 
victim of racism, white supremacy. She was on the program, The Cows, 2016, uh, and said that she thinks black male privilege does exist, even though she could not cite any immediate concrete examples. Uh, wow. Any thoughts on what you heard in the sound clip? Yeah, that was, uh, I didn't know who it was. Um, and I, I definitely, you know, appreciate her work. I used her text, Progressive Black Masculinities, in my early black male studies course. So, you know, I pre- one of the things I appreciated about her work is she was actually breaking from traditional black feminist intersectionality and pushing for multidimensionality. And she was basically making the argument at different points uh, and in different, in different work that she did that, you know, when she tried to find what, you know, intersectionality argued about black men, that they were oppressed on the basis of race, but privileged on the basis of gender. She was one of the first that I saw, along with Darren Hutchinson and, of course, Tommy Curry, to talk about the lack of empirical data to support the argument that black feminists have been pushing since the late 1980s that black males have this privilege. So I'm surprised to hear that that was her making that argument because she's one of the first that I read that actually challenged it by actually asking the question about whether or not the data supports the argument. Um, you know, and, and, and for her to actually say, I don't have any data, but I still believe it to be so, it's such a blow in a certain way because, I, I, you know, she was one of the ones that gave me hope about whether or not there could be a kind of academic, gendered coming to terms between black masculinists and black feminists about this issue. And it's disheartening to find that that may not be the case, at least in regard to her her, her statement on that. Uh, I mean, I don't know. If I was talking to – we, I generally try to discuss white supremacy racism as a science. I feel you can't dominate people all over the world for centuries mm-hmm. without being scientific. That's not accidental for this mm-hmm. to be a problem for dark people everywhere and every century on and on and on so we have to be right. scientific in how we look at this problem that is about as far from scientific as you can be i think this exists i don't have any concrete examples or evidence yeah. but i think yeah. that, i mean whoa, like once we get to that point it could be hey i think i'm superman i think you're green i mean anything now this can be grounded anybody she did a full program. You can go back mm-hmm. in the archive and listen to the entire two-hour, I think, 15-minute. Now, mm-hmm. she emailed because I said during the program and when she left, that is absurd. I talked to her the same way I'm talking to you. That is mm-hmm. absurd. You're a legal scholar. Mm-hmm. Even if I was talking to a homeless person, I would expect them to have a better response than, I think this exists, even though I don't have any evidence. Like, are you serious? Now, she did eventually come out, even read exactly what she said in her email response. She Mm -hmm. says, despite your concern about the word privilege, which we discussed in the program before we got to blackmail privilege specifically, which which even that was interesting because I asked about privilege, and she didn't even have an immediate definition, which was against that. (laughs) Like, whoa, like how are you – anyway, she says, despite your concern about the word privilege, you asked me about blackmail privilege. I explained that black men had some privilege by virtue of being men, but I noted that this was complicated by race, which meant that in some circumstances, black men were made more vulnerable by being both black and male. 
that mm-hmm. is, they suffered from gendered racism, as in racial profiling, the subject of my work some time ago. In other words, mm-hmm. the reality of black male lives is complicated. It is not mm-hmm. either they are privileged or they are victimized by gendered racism, but instead both. From my perspective, black men benefit from being men in a male-dominated, male-supremacist society. Here, you wanted examples. I Mm -hmm. gave you examples of wage difference. Oh, my God. That could have been a whole different clip. We had a discussion where she said black uh, females make the least amount of money, wage disparity, uh, and then she said black males make more than white women, and I challenged on the spot. I said, I don't think that's true. I don't have the data for that on hand because I hadn't looked at it, but that I don't think is true, and she didn't have the data to support her point. So I said, well, we'll just have to agree to disagree until I can go get the data. Dr. Curry sent me the U.S. labor statistics from 2012. She was wrong. White women make more than black males. So it's just like, oh, my God, what is well, anyway. and black and, and black males make less than black women when you control for incarceration. We're at about 51 cents on the white male dollar. Black women are at about 63 cents, and I think white women are about 75, you know, and there are whole questions about chosen fields that complicate all of that even further. But at the end of the day, black men are at the bottom of that totem pole, not the top. And I think what you're speaking to and what you're challenging is an assumption that I think has become, you know, kind of widespread, right, that, that there's, there's a flat notion, there's a kind of flat blackness that happens and a flat maleness. And what I mean by flat blackness is it, it, when it comes to black issues, black issues, whatever the worst of them are, are representative of all black people, and they're brought out in debates and whatnot, left and right. The only time you can get specific on gender grounds is when it pertains to women and girls, right? But if the issue has to do with boys and men, it's a black issue. When it's women and girls, it's a black female issue. You know what I mean? And if you start challenging and pushing for specificity with black boys and men, now you're being accused of being sexist, of misogynist, so on and so forth. So there's a flat blackness that, that only allows particularity on gender terms to women, girls, and maybe LGBT, but not in regard to black males and definitely not in regard to heterosexual black males. Now, there's a flat maleness that takes place, especially with intersectionality theory, where the argument is that all men, are, are patriarchal and benefit from patriarchy. And, and at no point is, do we really discuss the fact that black men are not white men. We never have been. We don't create the systems to do that. We don't have the means to maintain them. None of that. There's, the, there's no metric that, that measurably and materially shows black men and white men operating as, quote, unquote, men. It doesn't work that way. If anything, we're hyper-targeted on the basis of gender, which was actually an argument that uh, 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 Dr. Uh, uh, Matua, I've been calling her Mutua all these years, so I have to retrain my brain on that. But Dr. Matua has been one of the ones making that argument in some way, shape, or form. So, again, to hear that come out of her is, is just kind of mind-blowing. My mind was pretty rattled uh, listening live as well, um, but system of racism, white supremacy, I think that's the part of that hyper-targeting. At least that's the only logical conclusion that I can come to. You have to have an ideology that supports mm. all of the violence and terrorism that is going to be targeted on black males. So I think this is mm-hmm. part of that. She wasn't even done. Let me, let me finish. So she says, uh, 
Dr. Curry, uh, though I could not remember the details of the wage differential, these differentials are persistent facts that even your Dr. Curry has has had to deal with in arguing that black men have no privilege, even if they are not sexist, doubtful, or do not believe in male supremacy. Yet you claimed I could provide no examples. Really? But still one of your callers inadvertently suggested another area, the area of opportunities in sports. Because the society is male-dominated and prefers the engagement in sports by men, there is lots of funding for professional male sports in contrast to women's sports. Though black men were prohibited from fully participating in certain sports for years, they now benefit from the expanded opportunities created by this preference and domination. They benefit from these opportunities. They actually have more of these opportunities than do women. I'm sure you can think of other examples. I think the point is uncontroversial. So does that make it better? Black males, Floyd Mayweather and such? Oh, God. Absolutely not. You're talking about a, a population that's targeted because of their entertainment capacity. And for the most part, we're also talking about fields, whether you're talking about uh, basketball, football, those, those, you know, those tend to be the primary sports that that's what we're going to look at. And I work with those students on a college level at Fresno State, and I've been working with them at other universities as well, ranging from Temple all the way through the Claremonts. And one of the things I noticed is that for the most part, those young men are exploited more so than they're benefited. You know, yeah, there's a different universities. They may get out of certain types of coursework, but usually they have a half-life of three to five years if they make the pros, and the percentage of them that make them is infinitesimal. And for that, after three to five years, you know, again, that varies on the sport, they're out. So when we look at the LeBron Jameses and whatnot, you're talking about such an infinitesimally small group that to suggest that that's representative of black men is laughable and worthy of of lament at the same time. I'll give you a picture that's far more the norm, at least, you know, from the experiences I've had. Try a third-year black male student who has injured himself and has to go back home because his grades are so low, and we can get into that in a moment as to why, because there are K-12 experiences that play into that, not just college, but who's injured himself, can no longer play his sport, and has to go back home and live at the same place he was trying to lift his family out of. That's, if you're going to talk about sports as, a, as some kind of reflection on black male existence, that's far more the story I've seen. Or those who may barely graduate don't make the pros and, and are trying to navigate that into some type of labor, but they really haven't you know, been trained to do that. So many of them, you know, like I said, they're lucky if they get a degree at all. You know, you have some who still have trouble reading. You have some who still have trouble. So if you're going to talk about athletics and privilege, then put it into real context. Don't use these, these LeBron James examples as, as some kind of metaphor for black men. Because if that were the case, our whole reality in the United States would be a different one. But it's not. They represent a small minority, extremely so. Uh, my response would be three letters if it's just going to be athletics is black male privilege. C-T-E. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And I'll wrap up there. But yeah. anywho. From football uh, to boxing, yes. 
Yeah, I, I can sit around and drool on myself at the age of 45 because I've got mm-hmm. Alzheimer's or some brain damage-related issue. Or maybe I don't even get that privilege because a lot of them die prematurely. So, yeah, right. maybe that's a luxury. Anywho, uh, the grade aspect, uh, I was going to read from your report, uh, some black men may be jerks, uh, just the academic component where you said it's much more likely as opposed to you being a one-and-done and getting some – multi-million dollar contract and all of this wealth and influence as a, a black entertainer, it's much more likely for you to be CTE, sprain an ACL or something of that nature and lose your scholarship, that sort of thing, struggling, barely able to read. Uh, from your report, you write black. <clears throat> Make sure I give the full sentence. This is further contextualized by the National Center for Educational Statistics chart number of degrees conferred to U.S. residents by degree-granting institutions, percentage distribution of degrees conferred, and percentage of degrees conferred by females by level of degree and race ethnicity, which asserts that in black America, whether looking at associate's degrees, bachelor degrees, master's degrees, or doctorates, at no level did black men supersede black women in educational attainment at any level from through 2010? And so far, not afterwards. They control for associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctorate degrees. And in no category did black men have higher graduation rates than black women. Mm-hmm. That is a heap of black privilege right there. Oh, I'll uh, take you. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, I'll add, uh, you know, an exclamation point to that. One of the things I did recently when going through the NCES um, uh, data on on, uh, certificates and degrees conferred by race and sex, one of the things you find is from 1976 to 2018, black men have about 3,318,691 degrees. 1976 to 2018, 3.3 million. Black women have 6.5 million. They have 6,500,344. So what I'm saying to you is from 1976 to 2018, black men have half the degrees black women have, right? When you look at the impact, particularly after the 1970s, of what college means, for the most part it was a doorway to middle-class life, to white-collar employment. And, and if we're going to talk about it, we can also look at electoral representation, if you're not able to come out with at least a bachelor's degree, being able to compete in those spaces is severely hampered, which is one of the reasons you see black male blue-collar work much more prominent than white-collar, or at least, no, I shouldn't say that, uh, but it's, it's, it's much more pro- pro- prominent in the sense that you don't have the requisite degrees that allow for black male participation. So that said, there's a severe impact that we're still trying to get a handle on in terms of black male competition and participation in society. Context of white supremacy. Again, our guest, Dr. T. Hassan Johnson. I'll give out the number for folks if you have questions. Seven two zero seven one six. 7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like 
to participate. Uh, before I even move forward, the just getting even back to uh, the athletes, uh, because I feel like right now with the COVID-19 situation, I said I want to bring well, they just had a group of athletes in the Pac-12. That's where we are, the uh, West Coast, uh, mm-hmm. where they uh, said, hey, we are going to opt out. Now, they did cancel uh, sports for the Pac-12, so I don't know if this influenced that decision or what have you, but they uh, said, hey, we have a petition. We are going to opt out of participating uh, in a part of their demands listed racism, white supremacy, and player uh, safety. Uh, mm-hmm. These are folks who are at major univer- University of Washington, uh, USC. Mm-hmm. Like these are big schools in the Pac-12 where they're saying, "Hey, we're, our safety and regard is not even being thought out. Like it doesn't even seem like you've put a plan together to make sure that we're safe with regards to COVID-19." I have said repeatedly, black parents, this should be the death down. I will mm-hmm. never have my black child participate in any of these sports where you have shown CTE, is what I said before, CTE, Mm -hmm. in addition to everything else, COVID-19, the rush, we got to get these sports, we got to see these black boys run around with this and all the money, I mean, the exploitation on top of exploit, that like this should be, I'm totally done with all of this. Like if this is black male privilege, I'm going to give this one back. Like you can have all of the athletics. I'm good. I'm not even going to bank on the chance that my son could be LeBron James. It's much more exactly what you said, ACL injury, barely read, struggling to keep my scholarship. Any thoughts mm-hmm. to add, Dr. Johnson? No, I think you nailed it. And, you know, I think, it, 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 I think the sad part that we're looking at is this anti-black misandry, and, and, and I actually have uh, presentations where I, I break down 11 different forms of it, but uh, anti-blackness, Andrew, in and of itself, is so deeply set in the black community, and, and it is an arm of white supremacy. And this is where the majority of my research really uh, kind of focuses on because I look at it like, you know, in this instance, uh, black social dynamics and even the black family has, in some instances, become an arm of white supremacy. And in one way, part of that is represented in how much we think negatively about black men. Even which what we started talking about, the assumption that somehow LeBron James represents black men in college, period, black men in athletics, period. In any other context, that, that would be laughable, that every black man somehow fits that category. But it seems to be an argument that's well-received when it comes to black men. It makes no sense whatsoever. In the same vein, when you talk about black men who, say, abuse their spouses or think, you know, who commit acts of, of murder or whatever, that small population of less than 1% somehow becomes representative of black men, not only in the imaginary, imagination of society, but even in the imagination within the black community. So I've seen academics hold debates at conferences and merely raise the fact that black men kill people and end the discussion there. No pushback, no data, none of that. It's an accepted argument that doesn't require citation that black men kill people or that black men are criminal or that black men abuse people or that black men, as you said, uh, graduate and get to go on and be multimillionaire athletes. These kind of ham-handed, you know, half-wit kind of arguments that require no data are representative of the degree of misandry that's so deeply set against black men that it's amazing. One of the, I just had an example given to me just before your show started. A colleague of mine, or an associate of mine, I should say, 
sent me, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the video that came out a couple weeks ago um, of the young lady, um, Bashira Tripp, who ran over her husband with the car um, and, and, and proceeded to beat him with a bumper until he was taken uh, to the hospital and people recorded it and nobody really did anything. There's 15 minutes of recording and nobody really did anything as he lay there bleeding out. And one of the things that, you know, like I said, an associate just sent to me was a list of people's responses to that video. And I've seen it in different contexts, but he sent me a video of, of going through different social media pages and he's, he's going through people who are supposedly black on social media, but the responses are, well, he deserved it. You know, he made her upset. I'm sure he hurt her feelings, right? He's, as, a, as an example of how he's seen as a black man, him being run over by a car must be deserved because it happened. That's it. No context, nothing more. And the most she says when she's yelling and screaming is that he wanted to leave her after 18 years. And then you saw people in there talking about, well, I guess I can understand. Well, you know, he did it to himself. But when you reverse that dynamic and you see a man who's abused his wife, even on video, at no point do we talk about how he's justified in doing so because his feelings were hurt or because she must have put him through something for him to do it. We don't see any large-scale justification for that. But when it's reversed, Something, I'll give you another recent example. A young woman, I'm sure a lot of you, you know, listeners may have saw this video as well, set her, uh, I don't know if I could call him boyfriend, but set her love interest uh, SUV on fire. And she blew it up and almost hurt her, almost killed herself doing it. You know, she said she poured gas in it, she put in a match, it blew up in her face, it knocked her down and into the car next to it. She got up and ran away. And the assumption was when they finally in the media showed a picture of the man whose car it was, they just had a picture of him smiling. It had nothing to do with the day it was, you know, taken. It wasn't taken the same day that she blew up his car, any of that. They just put a picture up. Scores of people wrote in on how he must deserve it based on how he looked. So what I'm, what I'm talking to you about in this instance is how deeply set this misandry is in, in regard to the hatred of black men. Right, which is what misandry speaks to. Because every time I speak to a crowd, particularly students, I ask them what misandry is, and nobody can raise their hand. I ask them what mis- misogyny is, and everybody can raise their hand. Well, misandry is the hatred of men. And anti-black misandry is an institutionally sanctioned hatred of black men in particular. And so we see it even in our own community where that hatred is so common and so well-received and so deeply set, and I would argue multi-generationally socialized, that we do it and don't have to think about it, which is why you can have an argument about how black men are privileged and not have to define how. And people believe you. Mm. I was one of those folks. I had heard the word misogyny for many years. And Dr. Curry is Dr. Curry using it in his work. And he was on the pro- – and that's what I do. I tell folks all the time, like, you shouldn't allow people to use words around you and you don't know what they're talking about. He mm-hmm. used the word, what is misandry? And he broke down. Oh, okay, great. Since mm-hmm. useful concept, like now I recognize it all the time. Uh, when you say that this is uh, multi-generational mm-hmm. and institutionalized black misandry, what do you mean? 
When I say institutionalized, I'm saying it's, it's, it's backed up by institutions, right? It's, it's, so when you look, we can, go back, we can go back to different generations, but I commonly like to start with the 60s and the 1970s because it's during that time period where we really get to see um, the implementation of the next wave of this type of multigenerational uh, shift. Um, and by that, I talk about it on a number of levels. Um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, um, I'm so used to doing this visually <laughs> that, that I'm, um, anyway. So, I, all right. So, whether we're talking about access to state resources like Section 8, WIC, TANF, whether we're talking about access to birth control, notice it's 2020 and black men or men in general still have the same birth control options they had in the 1950s. You know, whether we're talking about the war on drugs and the impact it had in increasing mainly black male incarceration. And then, of course, of course, if you got out of prison, you really had no life to speak of afterwards because you had a red, you had a scarlet letter of having been a prisoner at some point. So your work options were minimal even after you paid your time. Right? Whether we talk about the impact of the Rockefeller laws and, and drug sentencing, whether we talk about access to quality K-12 schools and the extent to which you have limited male faculty, let alone black male faculty, and there's research to suggest that girls do better under female teachers and boys do better under males. But if over 90% of the faculty are females, does that explain the rise of girls in K-12 and, of course, bolstering those numbers in college at unprecedented rates across race. You know, but, but the impact on boys, and most particularly black boys, is incredible. So if you look at California, you've got 70% 70, 70 of boys who are functionally illiterate in the K-12 level. And at the Cal State University system, which I teach for, which is the largest university system in the country, 70% of the black males who get in to Cal State University schools drop out by their first year. And we're not talking about athletes. We're talking about black males, period. Again, I don't know what the privilege is, but anyway. So what those are the things that I mentioned, from birth control um, to, you know, state resources to incarceration to education, these are institutionally, um, you know, funded practices that severely curtailed and undermined black male progress to the extent that you can find it across health, you can find it across job access, you can find it in terms of life possibilities, life expectancies. I mean, it, it's so widespread, it's, it, you actually have to work to ignore it. That's the thing that, 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 I'm, that I'm so you know, severely frustrated by. You actually have to work to ignore it at this point and yet we still act like it's not happening. We act like black men and women are targeted in the same way. But again, I go back to the whole notion that black men are targeted uniquely. You know what I mean? I cover the, the top ten causes of death in the black community. For black men, it's vastly different than for black women in regard to the issues that, that hit us, from in utero complications all the way through, you know, police violence. It's a different reality for black males. And we've learned through this notion of flat blackness to assume that it's all the same when it's convenient and it's only different on gendered grounds when it applies to women and girls. Context of white supremacy. Uh, before I get to some of our callers, uh, number one, I was listening. <clears throat> you mentioned your uh, podcast or 
program, I'll say. <laughs> when, uh, when I was listening uh, to the episode, uh, The Profitability of Hating Black Men, and you discussed your efforts, talk about black privilege, uh, to get housing. Uh, just if you could give us, you, you had a number of failures. You're a no-count, lazy, shiftless professor, tenured professor, I know. But you had a number of failures in trying to get housing, and you finally did get success. But even that was kind of with an asterisk. Can you tell us about your efforts to get housing? Oh, man, that, that, that was interesting. So this was, um, this was really on the heels of the last recession. And uh, part of what happened is I was renting a home that um, apparently was, was taken by the bank because the owner had stopped using my rent payments toward the mortgage and started keeping them to himself. So eventually the bank contacted me and let me know I had to go. Now, long story short, I ended up moving two doors over. But the gentleman who rented me the house was a Caucasian gentleman. I'd been living there for five or six years. We had never spoken, right? And and he, I had a, a we had, I have a black landscaper that worked for him, connected us, and so we got to talking. And he was des- desperately in need of a renter. So I invited him in the house that I rented so he could look at it and see how I take care of it. And, and I'm a single father. I'm a widower. So, you know, I'm just trying to find a place. And the only places I can find are on the other side of town and in worse areas. So I'm a single father. I'm, I've already been a professor for five or so years. I'm on the verge of tenure, you know, all of that. And he says to me, he looks at the house. He says, well, it looks nice. And he says, and he said, I haven't noticed the police at your door at any point in the last five years. So I guess you'll be safe to rent to. And that's how I ended up, you know, renting the next house because I I had I think I had like 30 days to find a new place and everywhere I went, it, you know, it was it was really doors shut in my face. I had appointments with realtors and as soon as I would get out the car, you could see the look on their face. And there's one thing I noticed when my wife was still alive and my son was very little, he's 15 now, but at the time he was he just had to be about 5 or 6 years old. Um, and there's, there's data to support the notion that once bo- black boys hit about five, they're seen as older than they actually are, especially in relation to other groups of males. So what I noticed when my wife was still alive and my son was really young, I could interview for places like that, and they would get the same look on their face when they saw me. But when they saw my wife and my young child, their mood would change, their countenance would change. There would be an idea somehow that I must be safe because I have this woman and this child. But when my child reached a certain age and my wife passed away, now they started to see two black males that they didn't, like, you know, didn't think were very friendly, I suppose. And out of 50 places that I applied to, I was denied all of them. The only place I could get in was next to this guy who I lived next to for five years and who had never spoken to me. <laughs> and so yeah. one, one One of of the concepts I talk about is the black male dual economy. And I make the argument that when you talk about a dual economy, I mean that materially. I mean it, you know, symbolically or metaphorically. I mean it on every level. Black males pay a different rate. They live a different economy that's difficult to measure but nonetheless has teeth and nonetheless has bearing in the material world. I've been to dealerships with girlfriends and watched the difference. I've watched, look, I've seen women buy cars. I've seen them rent apartments because, look, I, I've seen them rent apartments because the, the, the person renting it 
said she looked like a nice mother and wouldn't even review her credit. You know, if I go buy, the, buy a car, I got to bring, bring a lunch. It's an all-day affair. It, it, you know, it, so I'm, I, when I look at these kind of things in terms of just the social differences and how black males are treated, it's a world of difference that we take so much for granted because we're familiar with it that we don't think twice about it. But it's a deeply set reality. <clears throat> Context of white supremacy, like literally, when they say sometimes you have to laugh to keep from crying. I mean, I was, it's astounding, like I heard it before, but to hear it again with a bit more detail is astounding. And I'm, you know, in a moment, I'm like, oh my goodness, his wife passed away and that's terrible. And, all that, and I couldn't even grieve properly. I mean, how many, times, both. <laughs> how many times has that been said this year? I couldn't even grieve properly because it was, uh-oh, now it's just two Negro males. Uh, yeah. I don't know if and, we want you. <laughs> well, and it's, and it's much worse now. I mean, luckily I bought the house, but, you know, my son is six foot seven now and 15. Oh, my God. So, Whoa. you know, let he and I walk in to rent something now. You know what I mean? But 911. <laughs> exactly. And I see this in a lot of different areas. I've seen it with, you know, police pulling over, you know, uh, you know, friends of mine, female friends who are pulled over to, you know, and we're drunk. I'm not I'm not even going to play. I'm not giving out any names so she ain't, you know, since one in particular doesn't have to worry about getting arrested, but was actually drunk, pulled over and very different response. I get tickets if I go three miles an hour over the speed limit. I mean three. I'm not playing. You know, I've I've been to Black Lives Matter protests that were overwhelmingly 95% female, and I've seen them shut down city blocks. And I've watched the police come and then courting off the streets without, you know, I usually have to file with the city when you're going to do a protest or something of that nature. Mm -hmm. Um, I've seen them do pop-up protests and have the police cordon off the streets for the march to go. And yet at the same time, when black men show up at protests in even numbers, not even predominantly, when they show up in even numbers as black women, the police show up in riot gear. I mean, I can, I mean I'll, I'll just ask you, Gus, if 200 black men shut down the city streets, what's the police response? <laughs> <laughs> I, I live in Seattle. I, live yeah, in Seattle. In yeah. I don't think they have 200 black males, but let's just say that they have 200 black males who live in yeah, Seattle. <laughs> Man, they looted a jewelry store, many of them actually, here in all of the nonsense that's been going on since George mm-hmm. Floyd in the name of George. They looted the Cheesecake Factory and all of that. And I said that repeatedly in the name of mm-hmm. Move and the Black Panther Party and yes. George Jackson and anybody else you want to think of. It didn't have to be 200. It could have been five exactly. black males who decided exactly. they want to go out and get rowdy in the middle of Broadway. Matter of fact, man, <laughs> I have been in Seattle. I told you, we interviewed Dr. Tommy Curry when the man not debuted. I started that program. I went out, and I have raved about Seattle. I've lived here the entire time we've done this program. It says Seattle is the best plantation ever. I love it. It's absolutely the best. That's it. I did say plantation. 
I went outside. It was a beautiful summer day like now to brush my teeth. I'd been in, in the house where we were at for a period of time, enough where people had seen me. I'd seen the neighbors and all that stuff. I went outside to brush my teeth. I'm a heathen. I should have stayed in the bathroom. I learned my lesson. So I went outside. I'm brushing my teeth as I walk around the block. I come back. I put down my toothbrush. I go to the garage to get out a box. I turn around, and a police officer is standing behind, like literally over me because I bent over. So I'm yeah. stunned, like, whoa. And he's literally the most courteous. I mean, if you wanted the prototype of how a courteous uh, civil service officer should behave, this was it. Super friendly. Greetings, sir. How are you doing? Do you live here? Yes. It's like, oh, we had a report that you were prowling the neighborhood. Look suspicious. And I said, mm -hmm. I was brushing my teeth. Like, I had a toothbrush literally like, what? And he said, well, mm -hmm. someone called it in. They said you look suspicious. So we'll just verify that you live here and be on our way. Mm -hmm. I brushed. Now, I do know that sometimes they have the prison tales where they make a shank out of the toothbrush. <laughs> I do know that that happens. <laughs> I have never heard. Oh, he's got Man. Colgate, and right. uh, and it wasn't even an electric toothbrush. It was a manual toothbrush. And right. Yeah, that he, uh, he's about to rape someone. Call, I mean, exactly. that exactly. is the experience that I have just as a single black male. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and, and, and black men tend to have those stories. I mean, I, I can take you to 10th grade when across the street from my high school, six cop cars scroll up on me, jump out, guns drawn at eight at eight o'clock in the morning on a on a weekday because they said I looked like somebody that that robbed a Domino's pizza two cities over two weeks prior. Right? I've had I, I, by the time I got to eleventh grade, I remember there was there was two police officers that would follow me in their squad cars. I walked to school. Now I want you to hear this: walk school so do you know this guy had to drive slower than the pace of me walking <laughs> on residential streets to get to school and and at least twice a week he would throw me over the hood of his car and go through my I carried a briefcase at the time so as far as he was concerned I was a drug dealer but it, to me I was just a young kid trying to find himself so I thought wearing suits and briefcases would be a little different and I could dress up and then I thought it was fun my cousin gave me a bunch of clothes he no longer wore so I loved it to him, he saw a drug dealer. So every week he would throw me on the hood of his car. To this day, if I pull out my, my Social Security card, you can see the ballpoint pen where the cop wrote on my Social Security card the numbers that I had to recite from memory so that I could prove who I was. Wow. And so these are the constant kinds of experiences black men have. And to see academics push this argument of black male privilege is a slap in the face on so many levels especially when you're talking about academics who have some experience with this, whether it's they themselves as black men or black women with family members who've gone through it and yet to turn around. See, this is why, it, you know, really framing how this type of misandry became common is so important because one of the things, it, you know, for the most part, this comes from a very small collective of academic black feminists, particularly in the early 1980s, right? And, and to this day, this still has merit because, when you look at the number of faculty, I mean, I think, uh, what, black women have about 70,375 faculty across the country. There's about that many of them. And for black men, it's about 20,000 less. Um, I had it right here, but my screen kind of went off, and I'm not sure why. Um, 
Here it is. I'm COVID-19. sorry. Uh, so, yeah, exactly. It must be. But it, black men have about 47,651, according to the um, AAUP, you know, uh, University Professors um, 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 Organization. And so we have, like, about 20,000 less faculty. And so what you had happening was college became the formal introduction of many black women to black feminism. You know, you had, you know, there were always kinds of, 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 of women-centered programs and activities in the community, but college became the more formalized, you know, black feminist kind of narratives that many black women were introduced to in college settings. And that's where you started to hear more of this type of critique of black men, definitely in response to the Combahee River Collective, the works of Bell Hooks, you know, the, the works of Kimberly Crenshaw. You had a series of, you know, uh, academic black feminists that would push this. But the critical point was when it, when it reached mainstream appeal, and a lot of that came through your Oprah Winfrey's, you know, your Terry McMillan's, what they did is they popularized extremist feminist notions and made them consumable to people who had not read the books, who had not sat in the classes. So to this day, if you go see a film like Girls Trip, you can see a film where multiple women are abusing one of the women's husbands at the mere threat that he may have slept with someone else, because somehow infidelity is grounds for abuse and murder, going back to the story I mentioned earlier with Mrs. Tripp running over her husband because he wanted to leave her. Infidelity becomes grounds for whatever you want to do to a man. But that kind of narrative, all of those came out of the popularization of extremist black feminism that was brought through that early to mid-1980s period with your Oprah Winfrey's. And, And so it's still being rehearsed to this day several generations in. Now you have grandmothers, mothers, and daughters and those daughters may even have young daughters at this point who have been inculcated in this very particular type of misandrist feminism that are, that's so deeply rooted that it's acceptable. And it's not only acceptable on the movie screens, it's acceptable within families. I can't tell you how many women come to me on social media or in response to my show and say, yeah, you know, I used to hit my boyfriends, I used to abuse, I didn't know I couldn't do it, I didn't know it was considered abuse. But you know it's abuse if a man puts his hands on you. But if a woman puts his hands on her, it's immediately assumed to be in self-defense or that he did something egregious enough to deserve it, even if we don't know what it is. Now, the reason I talk about this is because, like you say, in the context of white supremacy, we're really talking about white supremacy as it's been implemented in the community and in the family. And the way it's been implemented is to set in many ways, the community across age, gender, and sexual representation against black men. Black men become the face of boogeymen, regardless of context, regardless of detail or nuance. And what we learn, even black males themselves, is how to hate themselves. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> context of white supremacy, Dr. T. Hassan Johnson. Uh, I want to read one more uh, bit, just going back. You mentioned this earlier, and I thought this was so important uh, to just give a little bit more data on this, and then we'll pivot to some of our callers as well. Uh, you write, uh, when looking at the pre-birth in utero to age one category, the first eight causes of death show significantly higher male deaths and female deaths from short gestation, congenital anomalies, sudden infant death syndrome, maternal pregnancy complications, unintentional injury, 
placenta cord membranes, respiratory distress, and bacteria sepsis. Such alarming data reveals that even if the ratio of black male to female pregnancies is about equal, black males die in the womb at greater rates then die due to unintentional injury at greater rates between ages 1 to 14 by over 3,000 deaths, and even though homicide takes over as the primary cause of death from ages 15 to 34, even the rate of deaths due to unintentional injury as the second cause of death for black males from 15 to 44 is almost five times the number for black women who suffer from it from ages 1 to 34. In essence, the plight of black males apparently begins at conception, not when the public designates black males as a threat, usually in their early teens, sometimes you get a Tamir Rice or two, uh, often. Uh, let's see, the in utero aspect though, do you have a theory as to what what is happening before the actual birth even takes place? I haven't really explored that. I did have a colleague who was more of a psychologist, and I asked her about it, and she said, oh, well, you know, boys are just weaker. And, you know, for me, it was the response to the data was more interesting to me in my research than necessarily the biological and physiological causes, because that's not really my, my primary approach. But I would say that since I've written that paper, there's been a major shift in the, in the top ten causes of death. At that time, um, I made the argument that black men died to ex- exhaustion. So by the time you get to your mid-50s and mid-60s, where you start to see black women dying from heart disease, in higher numbers than black men, I theorized that part of the reason for that is so many black males had died prior to that age that that was one of the reasons. But um, in the last two years, what we found is that black males actually pushed past black women in terms of the number of heart disease deaths, malignant uh, neoplasms. It, it, it's, 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 I don't, it's astonishing. And depending on the chart you see, it can draw tears, at least it did for me, um, because nobody was talking about this. And that's the thing that kind of got me. So, it, 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 so I compiled a report from 1999 to 2018, and what it showed was that um, for black females, you know, you, you, you had in the top ten causes of death, heart disease is number one, malignant neoplasms, you know, cerebrovascular disease, diabetes, nephritis, um, or nef- nephritis, excuse me, unintentional injury, those were the top few forms of death, right? HIV is not in there. Suicide is not in there. Homicide is not in there. You know, it, it, these are not in the top ten causes of death for black women. When you get to black males, you know, heart disease, malignant neoplasms, unintentional injuries, number three, cardiovascular, homicide is number five with over 144,000 deaths. Diabetes, chronic low respiratory disease, nephritis, HIV is in the top ten causes of death for black males. You don't see that in the same way with black women because we do have differences that merit study, which is why Dr. Curry, 
calls for uh, black male studies in a more widespread format. You might find the occasional university that has one class, like mine, um, or the one program that Dr. Curry himself heads up in, 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 in Ed, at Edinburgh. But short of that, there's no serious critical study of the differences between black male and black female life because somehow we've gotten it into our heads that we've studied black males to exhaustion. We've had enough. We, we, we know enough about them. I've attended black studies conferences where the discussion on black males, one woman gave a presentation, she, and this was, this was in like five years ago. She gave a presentation and she said, all we need to study black men is to watch the film Boys in the Hood. That's it. You know about a film from the early 90s, and that's somehow sufficient to explore the lives of black males in 2015 and beyond. But no critical session. You almost had anywhere from seven to ten times as many presentations, because I've been to several different black studies conferences over the years, of course, seven to ten times as many uh, papers and, and panels on black women and girls than you have black males. And many of the ones I attended on black males, the speakers themselves didn't come. And the audience was three people. I walked into sessions with seven PhDs sitting on a panel discussing black male education, no data given, just anecdotal conversations about my nephew, my sisters, you know, my, you know, my, my cousin's son, and how they feel about school. And this somehow makes up, in certain circles, the conversation on black men. Now, I'm not saying that this is limited to black studies or that black studies is incapable. And so, no, what I'm saying is that in many different circles, talking about black males in these, these kind of off-the-cuff, off-the-hip, you know, anecdotal kind of ways is, is sufficient, you know, in terms of, of what we need to study about black men because they're really not important. They're really not important beyond what we think we already know. And, and stereotype is really enough for us to, to properly contextualize the lives of black males. That's where we are in my assessment right now. Wow. That, that ice cube is a powerful thespian. I mean, hey, <laughs> I don't know if LeBron James can speak for me, but Doughboy, like, wow. That has, been my, that has been my lived experience. Um, Absolutely. You, uh, oh, actually, this is uh, just, I feel like this is such a great point. It's in the epilogue, so, I mean, you're supposed to be hitting your home runs as you wrap things up. The uh, epilogue for the man not. Dr. Tommy Curry referenced in your work, he has such a great passage where you're just talking about, we, we're, Ice Cube has, has said enough, if we watch that, we'll have covered it all. He writes, since no counter evidence or explorations are allowed to challenge the rampant dogmas about black masculinity, disciplines from philosophy to gender studies are allowed to maintain ahistorical mythologies and self-referential theories about black males without accounting for the disadvantage black male existence has in the world materially or verifying the alleged privilege black males enjoy within America's social organizations, mm -hmm. its economy, prison industry, institutions of higher education, and so forth. While these inaccuracies themselves should give any serious thinker pause, the most dehumanizing aspect of this paradigm is the assumption that the reporting of black male death is no different 
from writing about black male life, saying that black men and boys die does little to capture the causes that extinguish their lives. This mm -hmm. reporting requires no academic engagement. It simply requires interpretation of the black male lives lost. Often these deaths are not thought to be of the kinds of important enough to learn more about. Black male deaths are normalized. We already know they happen constantly in our society, so they need not be analyzed. Because black males are known to die, we need not make them a subject of study. There is mm -hmm. no need to divert theoretical resources to the facility of their demise, attempting to do so to study black males as affected by particular ecological or ideological forces is reduced to the, oh, here we go again, syndrome, which is so great because he mm -hmm. got that as a direct quote. He was trying to write to talk about black males' plight, and they said, ah, yeah, we, we've, we've got boys in the hood. We don't need to talk about this. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. This is yeah. the pathological power of the corpse maintained by black and white scholars alike, where the overrepresentation of everything black and male in the dead body is presented as evidence of the black yes, male's social savagery and mm -hmm. disciplinary irrelevance. Mm -hmm. Such a great one. That's what you go for the home runs once you're into the book. Any, any, this is uh, Dr. Curry's work from The Man Not. Any thoughts on that paragraph? Oh, absolutely. It's, of course, extremely powerful and relevant. And I would add to the analogy where he talks about the corpse, I would add to that the component of the vulture. And by that I mean the black corpse, the black male corpse, does have some intrinsic value when it comes to its relevance to other people's agendas. So, so if you're talking about black male death, in and of itself, uh, we're only going to emote for black males to a point. We're not actually going to create policy that actually prevents that death in the first place, which he alludes to in the passage. But we will talk about it as a privilege in and of itself because it distracts attention away from others. So one of the things you may remember a few months ago when Breonna Taylor died, right, the conversation at some point became how did George Floyd take up all the air in the room over Breonna Taylor, even though they had been tearing up the city for three days. Dr. Stacey Patton actually had to challenge uh, Brittany Cooper on that on Twitter, where she was like, what are you talking about? She said they've been tearing up the city for three days over Breonna. But, you know, the difference, however, was that you catch black men more often than not dying on film, and that's something we've definitely seen most particularly since 1992. But, you know, the argument in and of itself that we actually need to make the argument that somehow these black men that are dying are privileged, even though their deaths have not produced any type of, of policy or even, even any kind of material shift that would warrant a new set of practices that would prevent those deaths. That's not part of the discussion. But those deaths in and of themselves are representations of privilege because of the attention that we give them. And yet, when you look at the incarceration numbers, when you look at the employment numbers, when you look at the income levels, when you look at black men are being, look, we are the only group of men that are actually beneath our women. And yet, somehow, we're, we're, we're privileged in some kind of way that nobody can define. 
I had a scholar, a black feminist scholar, come to my campus, and she gave a presentation about black male privilege. This was, I want to say this was probably about 2017. And one of the things she said in her presentation, you, 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 her, her evidence for black male privilege, she put up a picture of Snoop Dogg, and I guess he had some kind of chain around a woman's neck. That was evidence number one. Evidence number two was that black men eat the big piece of chicken at dinner. This is a tenured faculty person coming to speak to a majority black female audience, staff, faculty, and students about the existence of black male privilege, and her evidence was a picture of Snoop Dogg and the anecdotal idea that black men eat the big piece of chicken. That's it. She made a cursory sub-argument about how black males don't suffer from hair discrimination, which I had to write a blog piece about to dispel that myth because black men have been dealing with hair discrimination for decades, and we have a different dimension of it because we also have to deal with facial hair. But my only point is, in an academic setting, that passed for a reputable argument. And I saw people give her a standing ovation, students of mine, I remember I asked one of my students who approached me a couple of days later, and she was excited, and she said, well, what did you think about the lecture? So let me ask you a question. If I ask you to prove black, white male privilege, how would you prove it? She said, oh, I would look at home ownership rates. I would look at wealth and income. I would look at, um, you know, representation in Congress and, and the three branches of government. She, she gave me an exhaustive list, as I taught her, on how to measure and assess an argument. I said, okay. Prove to me black male privilege exists. Silence. Because once you qualify what you would use to prove white male privilege exists, the big piece of chicken doesn't count as an argument against materially measurable, empirically defined data that shows us who's actually in a, in a position of authority, who's actually in a position to, to abscond from accountability and responsibility and so on and so forth. But when it comes to black men, anecdotes and stereotypes count from tenured faculty. Man, I have been KO'd uh, completely. Like, I thought... It was bad with Professor uh, Athena Matua, uh, and I was mispronouncing her name before as well. It took her me talking to her <laughs> to start saying it correctly. Um, but I thought that was bad, saying I don't have any concrete examples, but the big oh, it gets worse. piece of chick. And <laughs> that is worthy of a standing, <laughs> and a standing ovation, yes. I'm wounded. I am totally wounded. Like, we are not, like, there are moments where I'm like, wow, we are not going to solve this problem at all. Like, racism is going to exist for another 500,000 years. Like, woo, the big piece of chicken. We, I'm vegan. We don't even have chicken. <laughs> Man, it, it's, it's, but see, one of the things I talk about is it's so deeply set in the social reality, we, we, we don't even notice it. You know, one of the things we did at my campus is we set up a retreat for incoming black students so that we could, we could, you know, promote a sense of belonging so our students would stay and graduate and matriculate. So we created this retreat. 
One of the things I noticed is that the number of black males, of course, would always be much smaller. So out of 30, if we got 30 students to the retreat, maybe five or six of them would be black males. But the very first year we did it, right, all the students are staying on campus. This is the week before school starts. We're all on campus. We're trying to get them acclimated to the campus environment, so on and so forth. So this is like, I think this was a, a Sunday morning or Monday morning. We're about to take them on an outing, and somebody brings in a boom box or a radio of some sort, and they start playing TLC's No Scrubs, right? So the five or six young men are sitting against the wall. I'm watching students, faculty, and staff, all black women, dancing and applauding and high-fiving No Scrubs and then singing it to the men, right? There are five of them. Black males, as I told you, in the CSU system, 70% of them drop out in their first year. Five came, meaning that if we had 31, 27 or so of those were women, five males. I've seen that happen at three universities, that very same type of dynamic. And, and when you challenge them about it, it's not perceived as any form of misandry at all. It's just a song. What are you talking about? It's just a poem. It's just a rhyme. It's just... You know, but if we talk about rappers and we talk about misogyny, we've got plenty to say. But when we talk about misandry, be it in film or music, and the culture of it, now there's no vocabulary for that. But we have a vocabulary for Snoop, for, for Tupac. we got a vocabulary. Any rapper who has articulated anything misogynist, there's a language for that. And so that's part of what I'm doing this work for. I'm trying to create the vocabulary so that black men can articulate their experiences. Because when I say these things to black men, they immediately understand. They just haven't had 40 to, 50 to 60 years of feminism to provide them with, a, with both a gender movement and a vocabulary to articulate their experiences. So for example, when I talk about the concept of anti-black misandry, one of the, I say there's 11 different ways that it presents itself. One form of, of anti-black misandry is what I call heterophobia. Right? The fear, it's actually anti-black male heterophobia. It's the fear of black men, but the fear of heterosexual black men. And the one example that I need, even though I can give quite a few, is when you talk about the lynchings that would take place all the way through the mid-20th century, overwhelmingly those lynchings that applied to black males involved desecrating right, their, their, their genitalia, violating the anus. Right? There was a sexual dimension to these lynchings. But often on top of that, the rationale for the lynching was the rape of a white woman. Even if, as was the case much of the time, there was no evidence and no real court case involved, the mere assertion that this black male may have raped a white woman was enough to justify his death. So on multiple levels, you see a very clear-cut hatred and fear of heterosexual black men. And when I say that to black men, they drop their jaw, not because I've said something so innovative that it blew their mind, but because I gave them a language to explain something that they've always seen but didn't know how to describe in terms like that. And that's what I think black men need at this point, a vocabulary to articulate the particularities of their experiences beyond just race. Because, again, now we're talking about white supremacy in the context of family and social dynamics between the genders. How do you have that conversation if you don't have the vocabulary for it, except when it applies to women's experiences? It's a one-sided conversation. Context of white supremacy. Our guest, Dr. T. Hassan 
Johnson. Uh, and just for full transparency, like, man, the fried chicken, that is like Buster Douglas, Mike Tyson. Like, I have not recovered, like, throwing the towel. Like, are you serious? Like, how do you argue against the big piece of chicken? <laughs> That black privilege exists because you get the big piece of chicken. <laughs> well, you know, interestingly, after that, you know, she she's where I heard that presented publicly first. But then you got the piece that came out a couple of years ago on social media, right? Um, by what's his name? Um, oh my goodness, I can't recall his name. But he did the piece that black men are the white men of the black community, <laughs> and he makes the argument in that piece. Damon Young, he makes the argument in that piece about the black the piece of chicken. He does. He does. And I saw black women cheering that, high-fiving each other about it, the same way I did about them singing, you know, no scrubs to this small group of black males who more than likely, statistically speaking, wouldn't be there longer than a year, the same way I saw them giving a, a, a standing ovation to this sister who's <clears throat> tenured faculty breaking down the big piece of chicken and Snoop Dogg as the justification for the argument of black male privilege. And, and, and black male oppression of black women. And this is, why, this is one of the reasons Tommy Curry's work is so revolutionary because he's not only providing an argument, he's giving us a pla- really a method. He's giving us a paradigm approach, a paradigmatic approach to studying black men that is not rooted in opinion. It's not rooted in a hatred of black women. It's rooted in what the data says. What can we prove? beyond our feelings, our individual stories, our anecdotes, uh, what somebody joked about one day we were talking to. No, what does the data present? So, so again, in, you know, if you, if you check his interview, for example, with Yvette Carnell, he did on her show, one of the points of contention on the show, and this came from her comment section, was somebody was saying in the comments that black men kill black women in mass. And Dr. Curry had to break down. You only have a couple hundred women killed per year by their intimate partner and a slightly less number of men killed by their intimate partners every year. Black men are not killing in mass. And when you talk about abuse, the rates are bidirectional. They're almost equal. But if you say abuse in the black community, what do you think of? O.J. Simpson. Okay, right. But we don't think of black women as, as initiators of violence even though the data says that women are more apt to use weapons, they're more apt to actually start physical confrontation, the rates of unidirectional violence is actually higher for women than it is men. We don't think about that we, we, because we are so comfortable with the black male boogeyman that that is an acceptable argument because of a movie. You know how many people believed in the narrative of that just after, after Color Purple alone? Mr. became evidence. Danny Glover became evidence. My own grandmother-in-law says she hated that man for 20 years every time she saw him. Just because of that movie. But I can show you, and I post this on my social media all the time, I show evidence of black male victims, of, of abuse, of intimate partner violence, intimate partner homicide, and people treat it like they're rare kind of situations. Right? It, it, you know, whether you're talking about the woman who sat on her man's chest and poured bleach in his, in his mouth until he died, whether you're talking about the woman that shot her husband because, or her boyfriend because he didn't want to argue with her it was just a few weeks ago, or the other one that shot her husband because he walked in and found her cheating 
And instead of getting mad about it and assaulting anybody, he started to leave. She shot him for leaving. Now, I'm not saying this just for the sake of denigrating women. I'm saying this to say the reality of what we're living is more nuanced and more complex than the stereotypes we use to explain it. And black men are not boogeymen. They are also victims. Wow. Context of white supremacy. Wow. Uh, the number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, Dr. Curry's work, uh, super, super important. The man not read it. Uh, check out some of his many videos. And we even read that in the book club. There's another one. Make sure you've read it. It's in the book club in the archive. Check it out outstanding work. Uh, star 61, if you have a question for Dr. Johnson, we'll check and see some of the folks that dialed in uh, who have a question. Let's see. The Black African should be with us. The Black African. Uh, yes, sir. Um, I had a couple questions. Uh, for your guest, um, I think like Dr. Curry's work, like um, there's a lot of um, it has a lot of sections of sort of where it's talking about like um, people making like non yeah like people making accusations against like black males and that sort of equaling guilt um, and people knowing that and people sort of using that as a weapon um, in the system of racism and white supremacy. And uh, and then also this, I'm wondering about this notion of, like, the, the rapist, like the black male being the rapist, because um, it seems like it, it was successful here, especially with Dr. Curry's work. And I, I've, I've looked at other parts of the world where it seems like it's been successful. Like, why is this, why, how is that? How has that become so successful that that the black like an accusation can equal guilt for blackmail and then also that he's associated with with rape, even though there really isn't that there isn't any evidence you, okay now i'm sorry. the first part can you can you refresh me on what the first part of your question was? I apologize sort of like um that an accusation equals guilt for blackmail. Okay. So basically, whether it's the accusation or the specific accusation around rape, you're wondering how is it that that can, can, can have so much uh, momentum? How, how can that have so much uh, weight in that it's received almost without pushback, right? Um, yeah. A lot yeah. of that, uh, if you look to not only Dr. Tommy Curry's work, but he also references Jim Sedanius's work, and you look at, you know, the treatment of outgroup males, one of the things you find is that, you know, again, when you're talking about an invading force, an occupying force, an oppressive force coming into a different community context, one of the things they do is target the men. And this is something that flies in the face of feminist theory, particularly intersectionality, because it makes the argument that women are the most oppressed on the basis of race, class, sex, gender, and a number of other categories. Now, I'm not saying this 
this is a, one of the dismissive arguments you people you hear people say is well we don't want to play the oppression olympics that's not what this is about this is about understanding the life and the quality of life of black men and women and how it's similar and different at the same time right and in regard to black men one of the mechanisms used right to successfully undermine and underdevelop not only black men themselves but their image right was to suggest that not only were we subhuman but that we were subhuman and for a good period of time and dr curry talks about this more explicitly so i won't you know go into you know detail you should check out the man not but he goes into detail about you know the feminization of black men in the white imagination but then in, in almost the mid 20th century the shift to the black male criminal right but you can also see it in stereotype theory where you look at you know stereotypes like the brute you know you look at the mandingo these were popular stereotypes about black men being sexually and violently dangerous these kind of stereotypes were propagated amongst whites themselves to make sure that they were particularly when you talk about electoral representation to make sure that they produced policy that targeted black males and made it difficult for them to compete and participate this is one of the reasons that the black community doesn't even vote until the 1960s you know when 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 technically speaking uh, we, we were supposed to have the legal right to vote at a time period where only men were voting um, and that wasn't something that black men initiated that was just the, the law of the day it would have been black men voting but they terrorized the black community to the degree that it took damn near another hundred years before we actually could vote but one of the ways that they justified the terrorization of the black community was to brand black male almost like the pit bull or, or a great white shark in the sense that he's inherently dangerous and has to be corralled controlled imprisoned and killed on a regular basis <clears throat> so as to prevent them from from hurting the larger public right so so that's why these ideas became very popular and from them the subsequent policy and treatment of black males in society and 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 the and also our ability to watch it and have no reaction you know what I mean you can actually watch videos of black men being tortured and killed and for some people it's really just another form of pornography now we've seen in the last five years or so especially when you talk about uh, Michael Brown um, we've seen you know there be some outcry about the deaths of black men but then strangely the conversation gets baited and shifted to other issues so so black male death becomes kind of like um, a, a lure to get the attention and then the conversation switches on other issues which is one of the reasons I argue we haven't seen any significant policy that deters actual deaths of black men but it's it, you know it's convenient to gather some degree of attention whether there's some real empathy I would say the mark of empathy is change right if we're if, if I'm in a relationship and and I care about my partner and and I you know I do something that bothers her and upsets her on a regular basis and I apologize but then I keep doing it that's not true empathy I'm not I'm not really empathizing with her I, I'm just apologizing and I'm gonna do it again true empathy would be would be me saying not only do I apologize but I'm going to make sure I don't do this anymore because I empathize when it comes to black male death right you see the performance of empathy where people are upset and they scream and yell they may even protest do they push or not only do they push for policy do we demand policy have we seen changes in the last 50 years 
that warrants the, 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 the treatment of black males on a whole different set of terms? I don't think so. I think in 2013, we saw the largest population of black men incarcerated, over 900,000. And the only difference between then and now is the, 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 the 200,000 or so less black men formerly incarcerated are still at home with ankle bracelets on. They're just not sitting in prison cells. So I don't know if the numbers have significantly changed in that degree, but is there a, you know, an overwhelming outcry across race to end the treatment with the same exuberance that we see people you know, yelling about the deaths? Is that taking place? I haven't seen it yet. Um, thank you. Oh, uh, my my last question was about um, marijuana use. Um, I, I don't have any like academic like you know statistics, but <clears throat> I live in Washington D.C. and I see like a lot of like young black males like smoking a lot of marijuana. Even in like my 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 like residence, like my apartment residence. And I don't know if you've done any like research or if you have anything about that, like. Um, like, like, have you done any research about that? Do you think it's problematic? Is it uh, are black are well, like is young mar- black males marijuana abuse? use problematic? Yeah, like marijuana use and, and abuse, or if the, if such a thing exists, like marijuana use or abuse by like young black males. Um, I it's it's not been something that I've researched uh, directly. Uh, if anything, my foray into looking at uh, marijuana, CBD, you know, any of those things has really been uh, more in the direction of, you know, the kind of new wave of health benefits that it's provided. But health benefits that despite that it's there, you know, black men don't get to be associated with it. So what I mean is I, I in the last couple of years, I myself have suffered some health industry health issues and I've gone to different dispensaries around California just to kind of study what options are available outside of the typical pharmaceutical, you know, kind of treatment. And one of the things that I find more often than not are fairly young white males who own these dispensaries. And they're selling everything from, you know, marijuana paraphernalia to, um, you know, edibles and pills and tinctures and all kinds of blunts. And yet I think about the decades of black men incarcerated for selling weed. And in a, as a matter of fact, I, don't, I haven't heard any widespread call for their sentences to be rescinded, for them to be retroactively released, for those who are still incarcerated for, for marijuana you know, offenses, and, and definitely not any major call for black men to actually be able to go into the marijuana industry and be supported by the state as some type of, you know, lightweight, and I don't mean reparation in the capital R sense, but, you know, in the, the lowercase r sense for the, the, the kind of local incriminization of black men and weed, as some type of retribution even, I haven't seen any of that. So I, I, I can't speak to marijuana use per se, but I can ask the question, if black men have been going to prison for decades for selling it, how come black men are not only not being released from prison or retroactively um, apologize to, but also not allowed to participate in the in the growing market of of, of the marijuana industry. So I'm sorry I couldn't answer your question more directly. Oh no, thank you so much. Have a great night. Mm-hmm. You too. Much obliged, the Black African caller in New Jersey. Did you have a question for Dr. Johnson? 
Yes. Uh, how you doing, Dr. Johnson? Um, man, just listening yeah. to uh, this show, I mean, I can I can check off uh, every description of uh, non-black male privilege that you presented from housing, um, incarceration, um, college, um, you know, special education, um, bi-directional uh, violence. Um, it is, wow. Um, do you think, I've, um, I have a question. Do you think that even when we talk about male privilege, I mean, even the word nigger that can be used interchangeably, it's normally in a black community a um, description of black males. Um, mm-hmm. do, do you do you do you did you have, have you ever witnessed that or do you agree with that uh, statement? No, I I think you're right. I, I've seen that. There's that term on <clears throat> the more recent one I'm going to bring up that are very gendered toward black males. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, I'm gonna respect your, your show, Gus. I don't know what what you allow and what you don't. So so the N word definitely is something that I've seen overarchingly targeted toward males, even within the community. And, of course, the B word is something that's targeted toward, you know, women. And, and I've seen the, the, the exchange of those terms on occasion, but for the most part, you know, N's apply to males, B's apply to females, and it's a very distinct kind of usage. Just like one of the more recent terms that, that you know, people have started using, like hoteps, right? For the most part, to call somebody a hotep is a derogatory way of describing a particular type of black male who may be interested in ancient African culture or history or so on and so forth, metaphysics, but it's very gendered, right? But when you say hotep, most people think black male. And, and so just like the N-word, it's used in a way that's targeted toward black men. But again, if we don't acknowledge that, that anti-black misandry even exists, and what do people tell you? Oh, you're, you're taking it too seriously. Oh, we're just playing. It's just whatever. No. This is part of how you, get, you, you have this intergenerational misandry that I argue is packed down, not only in terms of popular media, not only in terms of formal education, you know, not only in terms of social dynamics in the outside community, but even within the home itself. You know, that's one of the reasons I talk about in my work the existence of a black gynarchy. In other words, as the women in our community tended to be the most employed, even though they were paid less than white women, they tended to be the more consistently employed, the more supported by the state. Black men tended to live a very different existence. To this day, if you look at the homelessness rates, it's absolutely ridiculous when it comes to black men. It's through the roof. In some cities, 90% of the black homeless are male. And that was before COVID. And the reason for that, a lot of it had to do with, you know, them not having anywhere to go after incarceration, so on and so forth. And then, too, the whole question we can have, a whole conversation we can have about voter disenfranchisement for black men. So even though we vote Democrat only second to black women, nobody wants to talk about the fact that black males are disenfranchised from voting more than any other group, mainly because of incarceration. But my point simply is um, there's a kind of misandry that we find a number of different ways to pass down. And we actually live in a community that is primarily run by our women. And yet we can't have that conversation because you're not allowed to talk about it. But its impact on the perception of men and boys, especially by men and boys themselves, nobody wants to talk about that impact. And I think it's high time we do because we're at a critical point at this point. Mm 
I really do believe that. So, yeah, I do, I do think your point stands that the terms used, like the N-word, are definitely uh, derogatory toward black men, and, along with a number of other terms. And that's part of the culture of misandry that we practice, even in the black community, without calling it out. Mm. Okay, so, as again, like I said, this man, um, I, I, would, I would take up the whole show with questions, so, but... Um, um, special education. Um, you know, I, I, oh I, were, I, yeah. I was a victim of special education. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, fourth grade, um, you know, again, my, my mother, we had these conversations. She, she wasn't knowledgeable, you know, so mm-hmm. she allowed me to go through that process. Um, you know, so, um, you know, about the time I got to high school, because one thing that's not mentioned when they put you in special education, they start you from, you know, sometimes the first grade up. So once I got to high school, I was probably reading on maybe a fifth grade level. You know, when I got to college, I couldn't even write a paragraph. So I had to basically, when I got to college, I had to learn from scratch. Um, Do you Mm -hmm. find any um, um, correlation um, or overrepresentation in the special education of black boys? And is any correlation with special education and the uh, school-to-prison pipeline. Absolutely. And I think the paper that Gus, um, you know, cited that you can find on academia.edu, um, I guess it is, um, you can find it there that I wrote, um, some black men may be jerks, but black male privilege is not a thing. There's a section on education in that paper. Um, and you can definitely look at that because I do talk about um, the ways in which special education has been used to undermine black male advancement. It's impacted us, you know, meaning, you know, to the point that a good majority of black men are not able to go to college, and those that do are often very much behind uh, because of that K-12 through treatment. And I can speak to that, you know, empirically, but I can also speak to it personally in the sense that my son, it, 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 by the time he started kindergarten, within two weeks, his teacher wanted to put him in the special ed. Now, one of the differences between myself and maybe your mother is that because I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm faculty at a, at a university and I'm only teaching a couple days a week, I had more time to spend sitting up there in his class. I had more time to go back and forth with his teachers and so on and so forth. So I kept him out of special ed because I also know the data. And I can tell you that by second grade, he was reading 700-page books like Harry Potter. He was number one in his class, within the top three for the next six years. But had I left it to these teachers, he would have been in special ed simply because he was a black male and they felt that's where he belonged, right? And I'm sitting in those classes watching all these other kids of different backgrounds who are acting the exact same way. But the differences weren't in the kids. The differences were in the teacher. So one of the things I noticed, if you talk about kindergarten and first grade, the teachers were more apt to give um, tactile affirmation, right? That's what I call it, tactile affirmation, meaning that when a, when a white student would say something that was correct in a conversation, I would watch these teachers get up and go pat him on the head, you know, get up and go shake his hand. They, they, they were touching him, giving him or her affection and affirmation. When I saw black kids in particular, but sometimes brown kids as well, give the right answer, the teacher might give a nod. 
right? But more often than not, the teacher would respond to black and brown kids with a, a, a punitive kind of tone and mainly when they were doing something out of sorts. So, you know, even in kindergarten, these kids started to respond to the negative attention versus the positive attention for the white students, and, and the negative response on the behalf of the black kids became confirmation, especially for the boys, that they deserve special ed. But nobody wants to talk about the way the treatment of the teacher facilitates a lot of that behavior, regardless of whether or not the kids are performing at the same level. And then when you talk to the administration and they explain the white kids acting up, a lot of the time they would say, well, it's because they're not being challenged. They need to be promoted to another grade. They're not being intellectually challenged. But when black kids, most particularly boys, are acting out, it's because he's a problem. So it goes back to what Dr. Curry calls the subcultural of violence theory, meaning that there's this idea that black men are inherently, or black males really across age, are inherently a problem and are inherently incapable of competing and participating in society in good faith the way other groups are. But we don't even need to assess what's going on. We just need to assume that they're the problem and treat them as such, right? And this wow. becomes even more complicated when you have black feminist groups that will come up and say, well, black girls are kicked out of school more than anyone. Well, no, you're trying to raise issues to focus on black girls, which is fine, but you're being a bit disingenuous because you're really saying that they get kicked out of school or put into special ed more than white girls, but not more than black boys. And so I've seen this kind of work being done as well to parse through the differences between black males and females to target resources and attention in very particular ways. But when you look at the graduation rates, the college entrance rates, so on and so forth, you know, black, you know, black girls, black women are the highest enrolled demographic. So when you make the argument that the attention needs to be on the boys, there comes all this contestation about whether or not that in and of itself is a sexist gesture, right? One, I'll give you another example. There was a you, – you remember the film The Black Panther, right, uh, the Marvel movie? Yes. Right. So after that film came out, some of the actors were brought out to present a, a kind of a scholarship award. Um, you know, a new scholarship was developed to support – black kids in education as inspired by the film, and much of it was targeted to the girls. But this, for me, as a geek who's been collecting comic books for 40 years, was a bit of a problem because the Black Panther was initially created by white men, right? But it was appropriated in the comic industry by black men who tried to use it to inspire black boys. So T'Challa became one of the top ten most brilliant men on the planet. And by that, it served as an inspiration for young black boys in math and science. By the time you get to the first movie, right, they shift the narrative to his sister, and she becomes the brilliant. And there's nothing wrong with black woman brilliance. I have no problem with that. But when you talk about this particular character, the disservice that did to boys is incalculable. Because it would be like taking Superman's greatest power, his strength or his flight, and giving it to Lois. His greatest power was his intellect, and that in the comic books served as an inspiration to black boys. But once that was removed, and then you had the subsequent scholarship that was developed that targeted girls, it was really a slap in the face to generations of black boys who had been fighting within the comic industry to try and find a foothold. And so it's these kinds of practices that are initiated 
by those with means institutionally, privately, or, you know, in terms of a government, and those without, especially in regard to black men. And it ends up doing us a further disservice because, again, we don't even often have the vocabulary to point this out. Hmm. Wow. Um, Gus, do I have Hang on, one, another question? I just, we have a few folks that dialed in with hand up. I want to try to get as many folks as we can. Thank you for your patience, sir. Uh, let's see, the person, oh, is this B in Toronto? B in Toronto, did you have a question? Yes, I do. Thank you so much, Gus, and thank you, Dr. Johnson. Um, it's been truly inspiring and insightful, uh, the information that you've been providing. Um, there were three quick things that I wanted to mention, um, and uh, they will be in forms of uh, questions. Uh, the first is in regards to special education. Um, just to uh, give a quick anecdote, um, my son, uh, the teacher in grade two uh, tried to diagnose him as ADHD. And mm-hmm. um, being a single parent, um, I uh, was vehemently against that because I knew that that was um, a diagnosis, a quick um, non-medical diagnosis that white female mm-hmm. teachers like to give black boys. Uh, mm-hmm. So in that case, what I did was I learned about um, the assessments of ADHD that at that time it needed to be present in three separate environments, found out that the only environment um, that the uh, so-called concern happened was in the classroom. So then I narrowed it down to what's going on in the classroom to um, to cause the concern. And what was um, happening was back to um, the different level of praises that you had discussed earlier in which white children would be patted on the head. I would even see some teachers allow white children to be uh, sitting on their laps, laying um, on their chest mm-hmm. while mm-hmm. they're on the rocking chair. So, you know, just mm-hmm. giving that loving, doting attention, whereas completely ignoring non-white children. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, and also just giving them punitive measures. So when I had brought that up, plus I had made sure that I brought my mother in, who was also a mental health professional. Um, oh yeah. As well as brought in the principal and was willing to bring in the superintendent, um, advocated, and at the end of the day, the teacher had to step down, take back her words, um, and retract um, her so-called diagnosis that she clearly was not qualified for. Um, Mm. So so advocating for your child is the utmost, um, and I would encourage parents to do that. Um, so yeah. my question in that respect is, are there any current programs specifically designed for uh, parents, um, hopefully in particular single parents who have boys, um, on how to combat the school system when they try to press these things? Because I've even done contracts in the schools, and these teachers do not know what they're talking about. Um, they are. No, they do not have connections to a neurologist. They do not have a connection mm. to to a psychologist. Um, but they seem to feel that they have this quality to diagnose. Just in the interest of time, can we pivot to the question? 
Yes, so so that was one of the questions is do, um, is there like a, a program where it will help parents to advocate on behalf of their children, uh, in particular black boys, to to help um, uh, avoid from getting into the special education system. So that so that was the first question. Uh, the second question is in terms of sexual harassment because there's been situations where um, from from black students, young and getting into adolescence, I've noticed that there's quite a number of white teachers um, that are doing things that are quite inappropriate. Um, so uh, has there been any studies on um, young uh, black boys um, undergoing sexual harassment in the academic sphere as well as black men in the um, workplace? Because I know that Gus had a, a podcast regarding uh, white females in the workplace, and there was a poll in which um, uh, quite a number of black men had been subjected to sexual harassment. So is there something on how to advocate um, to ensure that they too are covered uh, and not further sexually harassed? And then the last question that I had was in terms of um, Oh, gosh, I forgot the last question. I'm so sorry. I will just leave it at those two for now. Thank you so much for your time. Okay. Well, unfortunately, you know, as far as specific programs uh, or research on either, um, I'm, you caught me standing flat foot. I'm not sure offhand. I do know in terms of um, sexual experiences, on, you know, for Young males, there's a paper done, in fact, by Tommy Curry and Ebony Utley called She Touched Me, which is a good starting point for the analysis of, of black males' experiences at young ages with various types of, of, of uh, molestation, sexual harassment, and rape. Um, but as far as in the workplace, I'm not immediately familiar, although some of my work on that is really, you know, more about, you know, more on the theoretical level where I make the argument that black males do experience sexual harassment uh, on the terms that, you know, that we're familiar with, but also on terms that we're not. In other words, there's, there's harassment, but much of the harassment that we've learned to define, just like with rape, just like with, you know, we've learned to define these things strictly in terms of how women tend to experience them. But a lot of the time, we don't know how to categorize men's experiences with them when they're a little different. So, for example, um, yes, the traditional notions of harassment, jokes, you know, people touching you with, without your consent, especially in, a, in a, suggestive, a suggestive manner, those are definitely, you know, various types of harassment. But one that I think is unique to black males is uh, when you're in an environment and you find people fear your presence to the degree where they might try and get you fired or falsely report you on things you haven't done strictly on the basis of you being black and male. And a lot of the time, the stereotypes they'll invoke, right, to try and get, to curry favor, to make their accusations seem sound, are, are, are really stereotypes that go back as far as you being threatening, you may be large, you may be so on and so forth. So one of the things I point out is that type of castigating of black males um, in that manner, stereotypically, on the basis of his race, and of his gender, is a form of sexual harassment for black men. But it's not one we casually think about when we think about the concept of sexual harassment because, like so many other gendered concepts, we only think about them in terms of how they apply to women, 
But with men, it may be different. So, yes, on one end, you might have, say, an employer who might be trying to, you know, suggest that if you don't provide sexual favors, you can't keep your job. There is that. But there may also be you losing your job because people are afraid of you strictly on the basis of your race and your gender. And as black males, we tend to suffer from that kind of dynamic more than others. So, again, sexual harassment on a slightly different set of terms is a concept that I employ in my work. Um, but as far as uh, what you raised earlier about there pro- being programs, I apologize. I'm not familiar. That isn't to suggest there aren't any. Um, I've run across a number of different programs that cover everything from supporting black boys in school to preventing young black boys suicide, but I'm afraid uh, I don't have that data in front of me at the moment, so I, I don't recall. But I do apologize. Much obliged. Uh, thank you, Brownlee, for the question via Toronto. Uh, we have a couple other folks who dialed in with questions. Did you have time to take a few more questions before you depart, or if you already have time blocked out? I know you're a single parent that is cool in the gang. Uh, did oh, you have no, time? I, I, I just bought a, a, a pressure cooker, so I'm able to cook things a little faster, so we'll be all right. <laughs> we can oh, go a little longer. <laughs> wow, I want a pressure cooker too, man. You could do so many great things. Um, <laughs> talk about cooking for all day. Let's see. Uh, we had a couple people dialed in. I guess you're on the Vope line, perhaps. Uh, caller on the Vope line with a hand up. Did you have a question uh, for Dr. Johnson? Yes. Hi. Can you hear me? I can barely hear you. Yeah, your volume is very low. Is it possible you can raise your uh, volume and or get closer to the speaker and or raise your voice, maybe all three? Yes. Is that better? That's better. That's better. Is that? Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, Thank you, Dr. Johnson, for your work. I, I had two uh, items. Um, so the first one is um, uh, Judge Joe Brown uh, believes that um, the push to put um, um, Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill is basically wrong because it um, actually a male figure should be posted first um, given, you know, that our society given that our society, I guess, should be patriarchal. So I just wanted to know your views on that. Um, I actually, as a female, I actually do agree with Judge Joe Brown when that initially came, push came out. Um, I never really thought of it. Um, But when I heard Judge Joe Brown talk about it and and explain why it was wrong, um, um, I, I... began to agree with him, and I know that he received a lot of criticism for that. And then the second item I have is I just wanted to say, Dr. Johnson, I it's just heart-wrenching hearing about the traumatic experience, you know, with the uh, police officer, and I just wanted to ask um, what tips you may have for uh, young black men, um, you know, in, in having to possibly deal with that. So thank you again. Um, sure. Um, as far as, if I go from the second one to the first one, uh, as far as what I would tell young men and what I often do tell them is to survive the engagement. That's, that's primary, survive the engagement, especially if you're, you're dealing with police officers by yourself. 
you know, uh, for the most part, to the best of your ability, um, I, I want you young men to get home. I want you to be able to make it home. And then from there, be able to see if you're in a situation where you might be able to bring charges or something of that nature. But in the midst of the moment, um, I want you to survive. I want you to live past the encounter. Um, so for that matter, I mean, I'm sure people are familiar with the talk that we've all, you know, you heard about. If you haven't had it yourself, you definitely read about it or heard about it. But in terms of, of dealing with some of these people, because I can tell you, as a young man, I never told, I didn't tell my mother any of these things until I was in my mid-30s because I saw what she was grappling with on a day-to-day basis. I saw how stressed she was and, and really scared for my, my existence, and I didn't want to bring that pressure to her. So a lot of the time I didn't tell her. And, you know, in fact, I, by the time I sat down and told her, she was you know, kind of blown away about the, you know, the, the many different situations that took place with police officers that had enough, I mean, that I really didn't have anything to do with. Now, there were situations, you know, at, uh, under the age of 16 where I did um, out of rebellion, out of frustration. It was a blind rage, you know, about how I was treated that, again, I didn't know how to articulate, you know, and that, too, would have been, you know, it, that would have been the value of having a language and, and having those kind of discussions with a, particularly a black man to have those dialogues with, and I did have that in my father, but we weren't close. You know, so it, so that being said, for black men that do have, you know, older black men in their lives, definitely sit and talk to them, definitely find out, you know, how they've survived different encounters and, and take notes, you know. But, you know, I, if you're going to ask a blanket question, I would say comply to the degree that you can, um, you know, survive the encounter, make it home, and then discuss with your, you know, family and supporters um, what can be done if necessary uh, to navigate the experience after that. Um, the first question, um, what was the first question, Tim? Gus, do you recall? Oh, oh, Judge Joe Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm hesitant to speak on it because I think there was a logic that I don't recall that he applied to it. I think he was making an argument uh, regarding a, a very specific historical memory that went beyond Harriet Tubman herself, but I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to challenge that or or support it because I don't recall the details. I actually heard about it through another person, through another person. Um, so it, 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 I don't want to, you know, do him, him the injustice of agreeing or disagreeing with something that that is, hasn't been fully articulated. But I think I think he was making a larger point. I just um, I don't recall what the argument was. So I don't want to. I don't really want to comment on it without that further detail. Right on. Much obliged, ma'am. Uh, I think there was another caller on the, I guess, vote line. Uh, other caller on the vote line. Did you have a question for Dr. Johnson? Are you just listening? Uh, can I be heard? Yes. Yes, we can hear you. Can I be heard? Yes, uh, we can hear you. Hey, hey um, I just want to thank you guys for the um, awesome show. I have been a, a victim of, like, just terrible, like, treatment from, like, my teachers my entire life. And this show and the content from Gus has allowed me to, like, contextualize 
this treatment. And I can just remember in first grade being like literally thrown across the classroom by my white teacher. And like I actually started actually started a book club because of the content I've been learning from um, Gus. So I was really grateful to like have access to um, the show. I don't have a question. I just wanted to comment on this. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Having uh, being able to articulate what happens to us is important. Uh, I think retired firefighter, and I think we might have hit all of our callers. Retired firefighter, do you have a question for Dr. Johnson? You should be with us. Uh, yes. Greetings, greetings, everyone. Uh, yes, I, I just wanted. Uh, the guests to uh, give some commentary on the place that white women have uh, participated into this diabolical process uh, in turn directly with black males and uh, collectively uh, further uh, damaging non-white people who are racially classified as black. Okay, so the role of white females. Well, um, I think there's a. I think for me it starts with uh, particularly second wave feminism. I usually start it there, and I'll, I'll explain why in a moment. Uh, of course, the history of white women and their relationship with the black community is 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 clear. Uh, they are they have been societally part and parcel to you know how white supremacy functions. They can't function without them. Not only are they the literal um, you know vehicles for reproducing. Um, you know, on a literal level, the people that engage in it and practice white supremacy and institute it, but they've also had their place in it. And again, we got to go back to Dr. Curry. You know, one of the things that he does in The Man Not is fairly unprecedented when he regards the plantation as a family of sorts. And he talks about white women's role in white supremacy as the mother of the house, as the wife of the house, right? The mistress of the house, she was in charge of the domestic space. She was in charge of the education of the, of the kids. She was also in charge of negotiating many of the business, de- business dealings that would take place from plantation to plantation. But the reason I start with second wave feminism is one of the things you started to see in the mid to late 20th century, or at least a, a good portion of that last you know, 30, 40 years, is you started to see how white women began to change the narrative, right? They changed the narrative on slavery where they somehow became uh, prisoners in gilded cages. And, uh, you know, against white men, they stood with black folk. And so it was this interesting kind of shift that took place. And that was part and parcel to the shift that was taking place in society where white women began to deframe themselves as minorities, right? So by the time we start talking about some type of affirmative action, white women become the primary beneficiaries, mainly because that shift of redefining themselves as minorities and then retroactively going back into history and framing themselves as victims in slavery and in, you know, in the period after slavery, like they became victims, at least in terms of the formal history. Uh, and, and white feminism had a lot to do with the shift in that language. So I think part of, part of the, the, the difficulty there is if you don't know that history, that, you know, you're, you're almost tempted, especially even after you come out with a college degree, tempted to frame the white community as a parceled group where white men are responsible for everything and children, white women, everybody else, as well as black folk and everyone else, as Gus put it across the globe, are subject to white men. And it's funny to me because white men will occasionally flash out on white feminists and be like, what are you talking about? You know, like conceptually, you're right there. You benefited 
from every stage of white supremacy. You've benefited from the resources. You've materially done so, even to this day. When you talk about the marriage rates between white men and women and their increased standing over, the, uh, over black marriage rates, it, you, you're talking about families that are combining incomes, right? So if you say that he makes, you know, a dollar and she makes 75 cents on that dollar, when they marry, they're making $1.75 as a unit. But in the black community, we're fractured. We're dealing with single-parent relationships, single-parent family settings in all kinds of different contexts, and we're trying to struggle and survive. And, again, that was before COVID, right? So uh-huh. white women have been a part of that family system. They benefited from them. They continue to benefit, benefit from it, but they've shifted the language so that they're not accountable for white men's actions. And even if you look at this left-right kind of framework in terms of the Democrats and the Republicans, liberals and conservatives, white women have framed themselves in many instances, not in all, of course, but have framed themselves as liberals, and they stand against the conservatism of, 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 of you know, these racist white men. And then when you look at who put Trump in office, right, much of that had to do with the votes of white women, which, by the way, I... I make the argument in regard to Biden and Kamala uh, Harris that um, we're going to have to really be mindful of the Bradley effect. Because I think when you start talking about what white women in particular are going to do in the voting booth, when it comes to voting a black or a brown woman, or a black woman, excuse me, she's not African-American, but she's, she's black, when you talk about putting her in a position that no white woman has served in yet, I think we have to be mindful of the Bradley effect. We don't know. Because remember, Hillary, you know, she didn't make it, right? There's no white woman who's been in that executive office. How are white women going to vote when it comes to putting Harris on the ticket? I think that's going to be an interesting study in uh, racial dynamics, race-gender dynamics. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's a good thought. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Four more years. <laughs> I've said that for the last four years, <laughs> just to make sure. Four more years. Never had it out. Four more years. That'll be a great point. Reminded folks a whole lot last time around when we predicted Trump was going to win. 52% of the mm-hmm. white women voters Yes. Went for Donald. They didn't even pick a white woman. You think they're they, going right. to vote for Kamala Harris? Right. <laughs> it, was, it was clear cut. It was a clear cut opportunity uh, for white women to advance in that degree, but they opted for the very same patriarchy that you hear many white feminists um, decrying. But they know on an implicit level that they benefit from that patriarchy. They benefit, and they always have. That patriarchy is in service to them. And, and when it comes to on, on a practical level, they have no confusion about that. It's only in the discussion on the public level that you hear all kinds of arguments back and forth. But when it got down to who to put in office, you know, they were very clear. So, you know, whether or not that's going to happen again will be an interesting thing to see. Four more years <laughs> been unwavering for the last mm-hmm. four years. Uh, the report we've discussed uh, for much of the evening, some black men may be jerks, but black male privilege is not a thing challenging the myth of black 
male privilege. Man, I'm still, I'm on the camp, like, I'm scrounging to get my mouthpiece, like, the big piece of chicken, like, really? Like, I don't even, man, (laughs) to uh, get an ice pack and get it together. Wow. Well, I I did want to say one thing about privileges, if I could. Yes, sir. And in the paper, what I try to do is, again, give vocabulary to what it is we're seeing and we're mistaking for privilege, right? So in it, I actually have two charts that I've used in class, as a matter of fact, to kind of point this difference out. But the, the one chart I start with is on supposed privileges and what I've heard people say the privileges are, and then I reframe them. Now, let me first start by saying privilege in and of itself is, a, is an extension of power. If you do not have power in a society, you can't have privilege because you have to have the power to maintain it and reproduce it, especially multi-generationally. So, you know, so if I have a society that I've created and I'm in power, I not only want to make sure that I'm privileged, but those who are like me are privileged, and my children will enjoy that privilege. There's no point in, in, in our history where black folk have ever controlled that, especially black men. There is. So you, you can't have power, you, you can't have privilege if you don't have the power to produce it and maintain it. And so what people are generally referring to as privilege is this idea that black men make more than black women or that we're groomed um, for positions of power or that, um, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll be represented in media in some degree. You know, our deaths will, our deaths will be, you know, kind of put on the big screen to be discussed. These are the kind of things that are mistaken for positions of power. But again, just like I did with my students, if I ask you how to define white men in power empirically, you'll give me everything from employment rates to ownership rates to, you know, the the percentage that own companies, familial wealth with or without a high school degree. Like there will be all of these measurable outcomes. But when it comes to black men, we have to retreat to esoteric ideas like, well, we'll talk about you when you're dead, you know. But what I call those really, I just use the term, you know, these kind of residual benefits. And basically what I mean by that is these are things that appear to be privileged, but they actually hide detriments. So, again, if you talk about black men getting paid more, that's only when you don't account for incarceration. When you actually account for incarceration, we actually make about 12 cents less than black women. You know what I mean? If you talk about... Um, being groomed for positions of power. If you look at the last 40 years, the trajectory of electoral representation is far more overwhelmingly female than male, and much of that is predicated on um, college degree attainment. You know, and the degree to which black males are not matching black females is reflected in the electoral opportunities, right? Uh, when you look at issues about being killed and, and notarization, well, since when has representation actually impacted policy for black men? But at the end of the day, despite this argument over who, whose deaths are being recognized, who's dying more? See, that's one of the things I created not long ago. I actually had to do a chart a few months ago when this whole question of black males uh, dying came up, you know, after George Floyd, and there were these accusations that black males were, were hogging up the spotlight and they weren't, they weren't sharing it and so on and so forth. And what I had to show uh, in terms of police homicide was from 2015 to 2019, 
you had an you had a range of six to thirteen black women killed per year. Six to thirteen. For black men, it ranged from two to three hundred. Right. When you looked at the 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 rates of um, the the, the uh, gay and trans the gay actually the gay and lesbian community and trans for that matter, it's it, there was a report that came out. Um, uh, the fatal anti-transgender violence in the United States report that showed that a 3% of 20 to 26 annual transgender homicides per year were police-initiated. So 3% of 20 to 26 deaths of transgender people across race were police homicides. Right? And of that 3%, you know, you're talking about what percentage of that 3% were black. So my point being when it came to trans folk, the deaths were significantly smaller. When it came to gay, lesbian, and trans, um, there's a study that came out of UCLA. I posted this on my Facebook page. I'll see if I can get it to you, Gus, in case you want to um, attach it to this. But one of the things that we saw is there was a range of about an estimated 5% of the population that's gay, lesbian, and trans. So when you relate that to the deaths by you know, police homicide, again, black heterosexual males are in the most vulnerable group. And yet it's offensive to say that unless you're talking about any other group but heterosexual black males. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm pointing these things out because the idea of privilege, in my opinion, especially as it relates to black folk, is usually a veiled detriment more so than it is a privilege. So the deaths of black men may get more attention, but they're dying more. And we're not even discussing the numbers as to how much more. When you talk about athletic opportunities on campus, again, that seems like a privilege on one end. But on the other end, many of them aren't graduating. And many of them, if they do, and the small percentage that make it to the pros, have a shelf life of three to five years. And they're done. And many of them are six-figure. They're not seven- and eight-figure. That's a very small population. And when you factor in black males who start playing their sport in elementary school, the infinitesimal number of them that make it to the pros may get a six-figure salary for three to five years, and then they're out. How many of them are broke a year after they're no longer playing in the pros? So that, see, so those are, and, 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 and whether or not they had a quality education based on their K-12 or K-3 undergrad experience further problematizes that because once they're done, they, don't, they often may have a degree, but not the skills that's supposed to come with that degree because of the training going back all the way from kindergarten. So these are things that appear to be privileges on one, side, on one end but actually represent detriments on the other. And I actually do the same thing for black women. In this paper, I talk about the things that seem like privileges they have, um, you know, but they actually you know, re reflect detriments. And I do that because I think we have to get away from this language of privilege because it doesn't apply to us. And we're using it, especially against black men, but we're using it toward each other in a problematic way that hampers us actually being able to look at what's really happening to the community. So even what you said that Dr. Uh, Matua was pointing out in terms of, you know, these black male athletes, that's what I mean. That's not a privilege. I call it a residual benefit, but really all that means is it's something that seems like a privilege on the surface but actually speaks to a greater detriment when you actually open it up and get into the weeds of the issue. I have linked the report 
where he has the charts with the residual benefits and so-called uh, privilege as well. Uh, I have linked it so folks can check it out, get all of the information, that, or at least the bits that I've been reading, and get all of the great data uh, that Dr. Johnson has in the report. It should be linked. I'll make sure to link it when uh, the archive is posted so folks can download the archive and download the report as well. Uh, and if he sends along the information, we'll link that also uh, so folks will have it with them. But wow, super grateful uh, that you could share some of your time. I'm glad you got that pressure cooker so you can be a little bit more hands-off with your cooking. <laughs> we will not keep you from uh, your meal again. Thank you so much for sharing some of your uh, fantastic insight. Uh, has been a hoot. We will definitely uh, keep up with your work. If you want to plug uh, your YouTube channel again, Sure. You can go to uh, YouTube and search Dr. T. Hassan Johnson. You can, you can uh, subscribe, share the videos. There's an archive of videos there uh, that, I, that may be of interest to you. Uh, there's also an accompanying blog, and, and these are older pieces, um, but it's black masculinities, or excuse me, newblackmasculinities.wordpress.com. Uh, those are the two places you can really find the bulk of my work. But much of it now is focused on the YouTube channel. And, um, and there's some interesting pieces. I did an interview with Attorney Dennis Sperling last week on intimate partner violence and practical solutions for men who are experiencing it. And the very next night, I did an interview with Dr. Tommy Curry on his latest work that I'm, I'm sure you'll probably be talking with him about, uh, where he deconstructs intersectionality and actually proves where they get their conception of black men from. Very powerful paper that he just wrote and presented in, in Edinburgh. And, um, and then I did a piece Friday night with uh, Dr. Ronald Neal, uh, where we also talked about uh, religion, philosophy, and the impact of intimate partner violence against black men. So, you know, there are a number of pieces on there that I think will be of interest, and I hope that people will come check them out. I broadcast every Wednesday, 5 p.m. Pacific, um, on YouTube. Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, man, thank you so much for sharing some of your time and insight. We will definitely uh, be listening out, looking for uh, new material. Uh, I guess with the teaching, I guess uh, it's remote uh, at Fresno State, so I guess, uh, or is it remote? Make sure I'm not Oh, absolutely. They're, okay. they're saying it might be for the whole year, in fact. Wow. So we start up Thursday. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Uh, I guess have fun zooming it up, and, uh, yeah, be, be safe down in California. We will definitely be checking in. Hopefully we can have you back on the broadcast down the road, but uh, be safe and have a spectacular uh, Tuesday evening. You do the same. Thank you for having me. For sure, for sure. Be well, Dr. Johnson. You too. Bye-bye. Context of white supremacy. Dr. T. Hassan Johnson. Uh, his report, again, should be linked. Uh, Black Talk Radio Network, uh, SoundCloud, I reckon, if you're listening to the archives, should be linked right there if you want to download. It is not super long. It's not going to take, you know, five months to read. Uh, it has references in it as well, so you can kind of be uh, paying attention, you know, as you're going along. If you're looking for other reading material, Whammo, you should have other uh, references that you can check out, download as you go, and you'll see some cows uh, guests if you read the report as well. Anywho, uh, we should be here on Wednesday continuing with the book club 
white dog, speaking of black misandry, dog trained to attack black males specifically. I mean, anywho, uh, but we'll be here for the book club on uh, Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Workplace racism got mentioned today. Workplace racism will be here uh, this coming Friday and Saturday, compensatory call-in. Hopefully constructive information. Uh, I can only say that this program, some of the other broadcasts that we've done, that should be pointed out because it's so regular. I remember when we read The Hate You Give. I remember specifically Black Love is a Revolutionary Act, all of that name calling uh, about black males uh, and saying that they are the, to blame for the fall and, and problems with black people. It's no count black males pointing that out and people being resistant. It was not high fives and whoopee and that's right and yeah, we need to be more mindful about that and let's make sure we're not name calling and bashing black males. That way it was, in fact, it was, why do we need to even point out that this is anti-black male in its tone? Very consistent, even talking about, hey, this seems to be a bit black, black misandrous. Seems like this is bashing on black males a bit. Sometimes it's even hard to raise at that point, even with other black males. Sometimes they will join us. Well, yeah, you know, black males do get that first piece of chicken. Ooh, man, I did not recover. Did not recover. Not, I don't even know how you how you engage in discussion, right? Like it's not a debate. We just we're still learning trying to use logic for it. Wow. You get the big piece of chicken. We have that idiot on the compensatory call-in that talks about no metaphors, although I think they do mean it literally. You get the big piece of chicken at this. Uh, folks who dialed in, if you have commentary to share, I'm going to see if I can get it together. Did not recover. Everything was – I literally fell out of my chair. I was – I had, because I had like a, I had some questions I didn't even get to. I was in my chair and I was focused and trying. I had John Henryism written down, right, because he was talking about black males working themselves to death and boom, boom, boom. He had other uh, great, we were talking about hip hop artists and I had that. He had talked about Jimmy Superon Spicer. He had just passed away. We just talked about that on the compensatory call in. Like, I totally lost it. Not only you get the big piece of chicken, but high fives right on. <laughs> Dr. Welding said, be not disparaged. That is one to be disparaged. <laughs> Man, we don't need to be eating fried chicken either. I will say really quick, the folks who, who dialed in, if you have commentary, you can proceed after I get this last comment. Uh, man, when he shared that, I think he said it was his people in his, in his family, uh, attempted, blood rev attempted blood relatives, as they say, uh, said that they hated Danny Glover for years. Because of a movie, not because he did something, not because he called, called them a name or, you know, keyed their car or something. Because of a movie. Shame how he did Whoopi Goldberg, Cowbell. Said they hated him for years. Black male gets run over by a car and it's, oh, yeah, he did something. <laughs> He, he did something to deserve it. Like, oh, yeah, 
he he was raping he was gonna rape somebody. He stole a purse like he he did like man like the amount. Woo, that would be another illustration. I'm not on that brother and sister. Like let's just be truthful about what white people have done to us because that's all this is an indictment of what racist woman, racist man, racist child have done to us. But let's just be true. We're not brothers and sisters and all that. <sighs> think real bad. I still think bad about Danny Glover. Might smack him if I see <laughs> System of white supremacy with A pluses. A pluses. They have done a job. Any of the folks who dialed in commentary that they would like to share? Yeah, go. Okay. Uh, I yield for the lady. Be in Toronto, I think that was. Oh, thank you. Um, yes, uh, it came back to me the other question that I would have liked to ask um, Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, which was um, toxic femininity. How much um, research and data has gone into that, um, and particularly um, starting from uh, women who are rearing their children and the amount of um, documented abuses um, and how that would have been a conservative estimate compared to the undocumented abuses um, that um, mothers impart on their children. Uh, because I, it just seems that with, the, with this whole feminist type of perspective that's being really pushed, um, that that information is not being brought out. Um, but thank you. I leave the line. Uh, yeah, got who we... Oh, yes, sir. Caller in New Jersey. Thanks. Be in Toronto. No problem. Uh, man, it was, it was just refreshing to uh, um, hear this talk because, um, you know, you just in my everyday life, you have these conversations and we off, all, I would often get into conversations of, um, of, you know, with black male privilege and it just really never made sense to me because um, even without the data, there was ongoing tropes about, um, you know, black, black women um, success in college as it relates to uh, black men and um, even in, in the workforce. And um, there's off, there was also uh, ad nauseum, uh, um, you know, just television shows pointing out how successful black women couldn't find black men. But when I looked at some people who, you know, say that they went to college or even some in academia, they'll speak about men as, as you know, as, as, as um, black men in particular, making more, more money than black women. So I, I just really never understood how we can have that argument about black men being overly represented in prison, not in college, um, black women successful, can't find a suitable, successful black man, but at the same time, black male privilege, black men are making more than women. And, um, you know, that, that just never, you know, I, I, again, about having the data and also being able to articulate um, 
your point or even articulate your experiences, it, it, it just, that, that, that argument just never sat well with me. It just never logically made any sense. And what's going on in these um, institutions of uh, uh, higher learning, um, it, I mean, the even toxic masculinity has really crept into society. Um, I mean, I've heard young women, I was in a restaurant and I was having a conversation with another woman and, you know, the, the bartender butted in our conversation and she said, yeah, toxic masculinity. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm just, you know, I'm like, wow. So, man, and he just brought up so many countless examples of things that, I mean, my life could be a case study on how there is no black male privilege, you know, from education to employment to, um, you know, um, um, incarceration, and just the list goes on to police targeting me and my friends at very early ages, very early ages. Uh, I just recall, and I close with this, I mean, we were maybe, uh, you know, 13, um, you know, 13, 14, some even 12, and the sheriff department would just harass us, you know, and I'm just like, you know, just up the street or where the real drug activity is going on because, but because we were a um, collection of, I mean, you know, we were a group of black males that hung out with each other. We was, we was targeted just for early age and, you know, just hard to articulate what was going on, but, very, very interesting and very great uh, show, Gus. Very great show. I'm definitely, I definitely have to recommend this. And also, what you say is be patient with black people. My question to the professor, um, you know, how do we have this conversation without getting angry with the opposite sex? You know, so you know that that would have been kind of like my last uh question because these conversations can be difficult and a lot of black people they don't look at this as black people reporting mistreatment they will categorize this as making excuses and complaining so that would have been my last question uh dr johnson certainly uh you know can answer maybe we can have him back or he can uh, speak with him directly, but I mean, he does have. That's why I said I had a list. I had other questions that I didn't get to. The fried chicken, I was KO'd. Like I did not. They would have had to, you know, throw the towel in. Like he is done. Um, but he had personal grudges, you know, where you don't have evidence, you don't have concrete examples. You have personal grudges. Now, when you run into that sort of thing, where it's a lot of emotion and that's not to disparage people's personal experience, but your personal experience, no matter how, you know, brutal it may have been, that cannot be how we extrapolate to talk about all black males, all black females, anybody really. Uh, but personal grudges and when things are not logical, that is, that's what I say to recognize when talking about white supremacy, racism, period, when you see, wait a minute, you're saying, what? Black male privilege is based upon who getting the big piece of chicken? Okay. Like, we already, we are not dealing with logic. That's why 
recognizing that we're not dealing in logic. All I need to understand the black male experience is to watch Boys in the Hood. We're not dealing in logic. That's something that I would say recognize early. If it's name-calling, if you're just presenting data, you know, about what's happening, it's not name-calling, it's not shouting, not even blaming any except white people who should be blamed, but not, you know, looking to blame anyone, just trying to make an assessment about what's happening, and it keeps coming back to this black males are to blame or minimizing of their experience, anything, the types of things that we've been talking about, that's when I would just make an effort to recognize, same way I would with racism, white supremacy, this person is seeming like they're not receptive. Are we following logic? If it's seeming like we're resistant to logic and there's personal grudges, emotion, that sort of thing, no evidence, all right, no problem. I'm not going to argue with this person. I will listen, maybe ask questions, but, I mean, once I see that, I mean, how do you question you get the big piece of chicken? I don't even know. Like, that might be one where I'm just going to be quiet. I'm just going to make sure we don't have conflict and an argument. Like, I'm not going to start name-calling this person and doing the rest. But, I mean, once we are not following logic, because, I mean, like I said, once we're there, hey, I'm Superman. You know, tomorrow I might be Aquaman, you know, take a different care. I'm Spider-Man by the end of the week. You know, for the compensatory call-in, I'm going to be – the Incredible Hulk. You know, that's where we are once it's we're not following logic. Uh, other folks dial in, have uh, thoughts? Yes, sir. Uh, refinement. Uh, the system of racism, white supremacy, uh, has to continuously have to work on their domination tactics and strategies. And uh, in this period of refinement, uh, you know, white people on the on their racist grind, uh, in turn, as the w- white female, that's why I brought up the, the question to the guests. I think it was an excellent program. Uh, uh, the white female, uh, and her participation over the last, I would say probably over the last 60 years or so, uh, in the system of racist white supremacy, uh, started having more and more contact with non-white females. uh, And in our case, it would be non-white black females. And in turn, under the guise of some sort of uh, equality with males uh, that they uh, call women right, women's rights uh, in the 60s or whatever, uh, which really didn't have a lot to do with black females. Uh, uh, but out of it, I think the strategy is to have a escalated uh, climate of arguing, fussing, and fighting between non-white males and females, non-white black males and non-white black females, uh, over a subject that neither one of us have any control over at all. Uh, They primarily are, as we uh, have a program on it, are successful uh, with that. 
Uh, and uh, I think he was pretty accurate on the white woman's uh, place in that uh, evil military-like uh, uh, adventure. Uh, and uh, yeah, I I started noticing it uh, myself uh, uh, in and around the uh, the uh, 80s and the 90s, uh, working on uh, the fire department, uh, that sort of thing, and uh, to whereas uh, non-white black females even felt comfortable in socializing with black female white excuse me with white females uh to the standpoint of uh the sharing of information you have a victim versus a uh deceiver and uh and in turn uh you know it's it's unfortunately it's pretty uh, prevalent it's pretty prevalent uh and uh Definitely is something that has to be uh, uh, focused on and develop some understanding on uh, in a counter-racist, codified fashion. Yes. Uh, I would like to uh, uh, hear from him again. Uh, yes. Real good program. I'm, I'm going, I, I, I didn't come over until about an hour after it already had started but I'm going to listen to the full program in the archives. You had good things. Uh, first hour, foundation, definitions, uh, good intro, sound clip as well, hopefully. Uh, any other folks with a hand up with comments that they wanted to get in? Uh, yes, sir. Um, uh, the the is it Dr. Matua? Um, when I heard the introduction, I was laughing because it was that program. I think I had been listening to 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 the program for a while, but I was still uh, learning, you know, terms and and reading and um, just trying to learn as much as I can. But I remember that program because it was one of the first programs that I called in because she she had made just like a basic, well, I don't know if it was a basic error, but she was explaining this black male privilege, and she, in her answer, uh, in her explanation, she used the word, the term allowed. Like, like she, she said that black males are allowed to do certain things, and I caught that, and I was like, oh, well, that's easy. I can call in um, about that because she just used the term allowed, I like like white people allow black males to do certain things under the system of white supremacy. So I was just like, oh, okay, it's just by you using the term allow um, shows that we don't have, or well, black males don't have any black male privilege. Um, yeah, I thought the the points that he made about the the white women voting and how they're gonna likely vote, I thought that was that was very interesting, and. Um, and I'm really interested if he comes back, like to really talk about this dynamic of the of the the school situation, like the the, the white women and uh, black male students. Like, I'm really interested in that because um, 
like all of my like elementary school, middle school, high school, it was almost exclusively white women. So I'm, I'm just and um, so I'm just really curious about like like what he has to say about that. So hopefully he comes back and he can he can shed light on that. Thank you. Talk, we talked about that, I think, for years. Uh, white women, approximately 70% of the school system, he was t- going into detail about maybe that has an impact on the numbers of black males who drop out of school. Like, yeah, that would be grand to investigate, spend more time, and the, the lack of black male teachers, because that would be another component of black misandry, because uh, they make up, I think, the smallest, number uh, in terms of demographics uh, of educators K through 12 is uh, black male. So you are least likely to have a black male teacher. Uh, but yeah, and allow that's definitions, definitions, definitions. So important. Yeah. And very important program. I would encourage folks to go back, check it out. Cause that was right after the election. <laughs> Listening to me talking about, that is what talking about white women and their allegiance. She did, I think, give very constructive information, uh, Professor uh, Athena uh, Matua, about <clears throat> white women uh, and their priorities and why white women chose Donald Trump in 2016 and why I'm very confident they will do so again this November. Any other? Did we miss anybody? Anybody have a hand up that we missed? Got everybody. Everybody satisfied? Anything? Uh, Gus, if I can close with this because you said something, and I, I don't know what was the context, but you laughed, and even when we start talking about black male privilege being getting a big piece of chicken, um, just like you're confident that Donald Trump will have four more years, I'm not confident after um listening to the professor and you know seeing what's going on in these institutions of higher learning i don't see racism ending <laughs> I, I would say it probably is going to be around here for the next 500 years uh if uh i hope i'm incorrect but i mean it, it just you know it just really doesn't see seem like it's going to be any end in sight Yeah, it definitely, uh, I can't say it was anything that would inspire confidence and make you feel good about about life. Like, I I cannot say, I mean, if fried chicken inspires applause and high fives right on, Woo, man, I am going to need a whole lot of smoothies. We are going to need a lot of yoga and meditation. <laughs> like, wow. Um, yeah, we, we have drastically underestimated the problem. Uh, like, although I can only say that was one of the, the least enjoyable book clubs that I participated in. Uh, where I, that was my conclusion then. I've drastically underestimated black misandry. Uh, just pointing out basic tenets of the code. I thought we're not supposed to name call. Is it okay to name call black men? Apparently it was the same thing. 
when, when the black male was being run over with the car, and it was, well, he must have done something. It was the people said that almost exactly. Well, I'd have to see because, you know, sometimes you're <laughs> <worthy> of being <laughs> I said that repeatedly when it was formerly the worst book I've ever read, rife with black misandry on every page, and it was, wow, just pointing this out and having cows listeners left and right. Like, what are you talking about, Gus? This is great. You know black males are no count and chipper. Oh, my Lord. Woo. Drastically underestimated. Like, yeah, it, it, that might even be my barometer. Like, how are we doing on black males? Like, if things are drastically improved and you can talk about issues and not be shouted and called a sexist and all the rest of it, like, man, when that starts to improve, you don't just have one black male studies program that's on the other side of the world. Maybe. But that seems like a long way off from where we are right now, August 18, 2020. White dog. <laughs> he said his son was six or seven. I was like, where is vodka? Where is the dog? <laughs> oh, my gosh. You have to laugh to keep him crying. White dog on Thursday. We live in but <laughs> they have dogs trained to attack black males specifically. Kwame Teray jerseys <laughs> train the dog to chomp black males. White dog on uh, Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Mm. Neutralizing workplace racism this Friday. Whew. Man, oh, man. Mm -mm -mm. Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, check out his uh, report. Lots of writing if you want to get more information. Anybody who is looking for reading, uh, reading material, there you go, academia.edu. Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, uh, you can read the report I referenced this evening, evening, and he has other reports that are also on black misandry, racism, white supremacy, that you could check out as well. So no excuse if you're looking for reading material. With that, <clears throat> much obliged, everyone who uh, called in, participated, listened live, archived. Hope it was worthy of your time and energy. Oh, man, I got to make sure. It was Negro Kitten Day yesterday. Went to the park, had vegan lasagna that didn't have chicken. We had vegan lasagna that was spectacular. It was way better than the lasagna that we had at the retreat, which I was told, uh, wow, whoever cooked this lasagna must have put their foot in it. Well, this lasagna had like two feet, elbow, wrist, everything. It was spectacular, all vegan. I have uh, pic I'll post the pictures, but uh, I was a black female victim of racism. Uh, I did not call her uh, a hussy. Uh, she said that she was struggling uh, because she doesn't have uh, great kitchen setups. She was having a tough time uh, cooking quality meals. So I said, oh, man, I will make lasagna and share. We had lasagna at the park. It was so great. Uh, the heat wave in Seattle that everybody is experiencing where they're having rolling blackouts down in California, the heat wave in Seattle means that it'll be 82 degrees. That's what a heat wave means in Seattle. So we sat outside. It was like 77 by the time we were there in the evening and had vegan lasagna. It was great. And as I said, we even saw a Negro cat. Still a little bit of fun in the middle of the Rona summer. Anywho, we'll be here for White Dog. White Dog. We'll be here for White Dog 
Thursday. Uh, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Terrorism is a muck amongst many other problems and hazards. We need our brain computers working at maximum efficiency. In addition to being sober, I would suggest hunkering down. Uh, you've got armed whites and the Rona and heat waves and, I mean, just seems like a lot of bad news for 2020. Uh, if you got to go out, I would be very vigilant about things that are happening around you. Uh, if it looks like anyone is becoming hostile, this adventure is over. Uh, you don't want to take any risks uh, with everything that's going down this year. Uh, be very alert about your surroundings. Encourage your offspring and folks you care about to do the same. Uh, again, if you do have to go out for serious things, sober, alert. If you are driving, you are not on the cell phone. You're buckled in driving or not, but if you're driving, you are not on the cell phone. For one, we're paying attention to what's happening around us, making sure no race soldiers, badge or no, are cutting a fool. We're also trying to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no, uh, just doing the small things that we can to keep ourselves safe, as safe as possible. That said, no name calling that can go a long way right there, minimizing conflict with other victims of racism, even if you do not agree, if they're not being logical, no name calling. With that, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. Be patient regardless of what they are doing during the election seating, if they are voting, regardless of who they are voting for, or even if they are not voting. Be patient. Be patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.